Hello, everybody. This is Jim, and I produce the show here. Unfortunately, the sound quality for this particular episode is just not up to snuff. I want to apologize greatly in advance. My laptop had crashed. I was uh, recording this through my iPad. thought I was recording it internally, but um, it just sounds like we're um, recording in an alternate dimension or a vacuum of some sort. And I assure you, this is a one-time deal. This will never, ever happen again. I'm going to be purchasing a new laptop, so don't fret. Have no fear. I hope you can uh, still withstand this particular episode. It's really great. We love Gabe. Um, and, uh, for the next episode, it'll be back to normal and maybe even better than before. So, uh, just bear with us here. Um, right, Frog? So enjoy this episode, including a little introduction here from, uh, one of our fans. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast with Jim and Patrick. You're in for yet another exciting episode in which two movie buffs from the Midwest discuss filmmakers that make for good discussion alongside a guest who shares a similar passion. They also talk about what else they've been watching that you should be aware of, too. So sit back, perk up those ears, and get ready for some rambling men as they ramble on about all things movie-related right here on the Director's Club Podcast. Take it away, Jim and Patrick. Thank you, Mindy. Welcome, everybody, to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us, we have such a special guest. Uh, You know him, he's a writer on DVD Active. Uh, You know him from our previous Mario Bava episode and our Dario Argento episode. He is a, uh, uh, I would call an expert on Italian genre films, especially uh, horror. And uh, and, uh, he's a good friend of ours, uh, Gabe Powers. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Oh, also, of course, he writes the uh, Crypt and Blood uh, column. Is it Blood and Crypts? or Blood and Crypts uh, yeah, yeah. column on our website. Uh, Gang humor. Yeah, for sure. It's very <laughs> important. It's very important that us white people uh, show that we're not too affected by gang violence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're doing another Mario Bob episode. Yes, uh, we are. Late. A little late, but consider this a late Halloween present, because I know you're bummed out the Halloween that October's done so quickly. So here you are, one final taste of Halloween, as we talk about Mario Bava. Uh, probably one of the, not probably, definitely one of the greatest horror directors of all time. Um, yeah, I would agree with that, and uh, this is going to be a very Halloween-centric episode. Uh, a slew of horror films were watched over the past couple weeks. And uh, Patrick went to the Music Box, mass- not called the Massacre anymore, right? Yeah, it's called the Music Box of Horrors. Right. And uh, I caught up with some stuff as well as rewatched some classics that I want to bring up on the show. Uh, and first of all, I do want to thank our uh, listener and crazy fan for uh, contributing a really, really great introduction that, you, don't uh, have to, you don't have to emphasize crazy quite so hard. I'm <laughs> nice of her. I, no, it is. It is absolutely. I just think whenever people go the extra mile, I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, no, that's true. It's very cute, and we're very appreciative of anybody who you know, contributes something that obviously took some time, and that intro, we, we decided to play it on this episode um, just as a thank you for her contribution. Oh, for sure. It's always nice to get stuff like that, or emails, or we still get voicemails occasionally. We got a voicemail about Wes Craven. That was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, so keep so, sending your stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, the only other 
business I really have to talk about is I was on a podcast called Fandom Spotting, um, which is it's a it's a podcast that sort of uh, it sort of revolves around different fandoms. They talk about like fan fiction or women in television and stuff like that. And it's just uh, different people sort of uh, talking about you know different fandoms. And then this episode that they had me on was for about horror movies, and we all talked about what horror movies we're fans of, and we, like, talked about, like, the gender politics of rape-revenge movies, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it, it, it was a really good time, and I, I really enjoyed doing it, so if you go to fandom, uh, fandomspotting.com, or maybe it's fandomspotting.tumblr.com. Yeah, I think it's .tumblr.com still. Uh, still, I don't know if they have plans to buy a URL, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you go there, the, the latest episode was episode 42, Halloween Screams, I was on. And we'll throw a link up on our own website. Yeah, and uh, just as a production side note, if this episode sounds different in quality, it's because I'm recording on my iPad since uh, yesterday, unfortunately, my uh, recording laptop decided to crap out on me, and uh, that'll be fixed for the next episode, so in in case there's just a slight dip in quality, have no fear. It won't be like that from here on out. This, we technology and us just don't mesh very well. Sometimes we're always like, you know, stumbling at the very beginning of recording. And like I, I recently got a great gig working at a church doing audiovisual technician work, and like I just now I have like, you know, constant paranoia based on like how things go for us and to think like oh this is like going to be broadcast live and on public access television and eventually what's kind of cool too is that I'm going to be um converting their sermons into podcasts for them so that's going to be nice but I just like now with technology it's just it, it's so nerve-wracking for me but in a good way and I'm hoping that from here on out once uh I take care of my laptop situation will be cons more consistent and I know like one person emailed said yeah sometimes that happens and sometimes the RSS feeds get all wonky but have no fear it's going to be it's going to be better soon enough I promise so just 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 being precautious <laughs> I imagine that you won't have as many problems uh, at the church just because uh, like you're not dealing like I, I do think it is directly God intervening yeah, with our problems clearly. Um, yeah, clearly, if anyone listened, if anyone listened to the, uh, if anyone listened to the William Friedkin episode, God actually did intervene at one point when you said that, uh, you didn't believe in him, and then all of a sudden you cut out entirely. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, God, God and me, uh, we're kind of like playful rivals, <laughs> as far as a man and an imaginary man can be playfully rivals, That's so, uh, did I just cut out there? No, I, I can still hear you. Okay, cool, okay, you must good. be asleep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that'll all get taken care of. I'm sure it'll be Oh, fine. yeah, yeah. There are podcasts with way worse, uh, audio fidelity than us. No comment. Yeah, yeah. no comment. Mm -hmm. So, I think we're ready to just launch right into one of our many segments, What We Watched. Aren't we? Sure. You could just watch them. Good enough to see. What did we watch this 
Um, Gabe, you you best go first because we're gonna be doing. Oh, I gotta go first. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Preferably. I watched a lot of stuff, but since you guys are doing Halloween themed stuff, um, I had to review uh, Scream Factory's Vincent Price collection. Oh man! Oh wow! It's good. Uh, it's got Fall of the House of Usher, uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Haunted Palace, uh, Mask of Red Death, which is the one I was excited about. Mm. Yeah, for sure. That's the best which, one. Witchfinder General and Abominable Dr. Fives. Doc, and yeah, since the, we're... Patrick showed me that one. Yeah. Since we're pressed for time, I, I, I think I'll just talk about uh, Haunted Palace because it was the only one I hadn't seen before. Hmm. And I remember when they first announced it, I was a little upset that they didn't have Theater of Blood or uh, Comedy of Terrors or one of those instead. Um, but I just never seen it. And it's actually a, it's actually now one of my favorites of the so-called Edgar Allan Poe Corman canon even though it really has basically nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, as soon as I started watching it, I realized it was, uh, it's basically H.P. Lovecraft's, uh, a couple different H.P. Lovecraft stories, uh, with a sort of Edgar Allan Poe-ish tint to them, and that same production crew that did all the, uh, House of Usher and all those. Um, but it, it was, it was really well shot, and uh, it was interesting to see uh, a movie covering Lovecraft so early on. Like, I'm not sure if there are any Lovecraft ad adaptations that predate it. I, I, there must be, but I don't know if they're credited ones. Mm. But it's, uh, it's a story about a guy, and of course there's fish people because it's Lovecraft, and uh, he is... Uh, he's... Uh, Burned as a witch, and throughout the generations tries to come back, and and finally in the is able to re-enter uh, the mind of his grandson, and starts to try to retake over this small town. Uh, and I suppose the plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but there's this sort of him being uh, uh, Price gets to be uh, he gets to play two characters that are literally fighting to gain conscious control of the same body. Well, that's fun. Oh. Yeah, it's a really fun thing to watch Price doing. Price, yeah, uh, Price is my favorite. I was I was so excited when you said this, because Price is my favorite uh, sort of horror icon by far. I would agree yeah, with I don't that. Yeah, I don't think I really appreciated him until I got a little older. Um, I always liked the Fives movies, but I don't think I really picked up on how... On his specific charms, I didn't really pick up on it until I was like well into my twenties, almost. 30, I was probably. I was such a huge fan of just his his voice from the Thriller video. Like yeah, that, ever since yeah. I heard that, I mean, it just invaded me, and I was like, once I started seeing him in these movies, I even grew to appreciate him even more. Well, he's got this very interesting personal story where he basically did. He was a, he's a very important art collector. There's a lot all sorts of people that credit him with. Um, saving art collection in the United States in a lot of cases. And so he would basically make these movies so he could have the money to buy another piece of art because he was addicted to it. Hmm. That's it. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. It was him and then it was some other uh, more recent 
sort of uh, Hollywood, new Hollywood actor. Uh, were the well, two. I know I, I know that Lars from Metallica does that. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know who the other Hollywood actor would be, but hey, not Dennis Hopper, but someone in that kind of crew. Uh, but I love uh, I love that about him. I love his. I just I love uh, I just love how gay he is. Like he wasn't. He's not a gay man, but he is. he was he was bisexual, I believe. Really, I'm hmm. pretty sure he was. Uh, there's rumors about he and his wife being kind of swingers. Oh, that'd be exciting. I don't know, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I but. I would love to go to a. I would love to go to an orgy and have Vincent Price swing open the doors and go, "Hello, so good to see you." Yeah. <laughs> if there's a, I mean, I love Boris Karloff, but uh, Vincent Price would definitely be more fun, I think, at an orgy. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to. Yeah, I can't imagine Boris Karloff at an orgy. That's he's got a more uh, definitively scary demeanor. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. so well, I mean, the thing I like about both of them, and this is sort of the thing I um, that now that I think about it, it's probably what I don't like so much about Bela Lugosi is um, they have this gentleness to them, um, mm-hmm. which makes them able to be vulnerable villains. Uh, whereas Bela Lugosi had, you know, he would just play everything very large and just, you know, he would just overact and stuff. Whereas, I mean, I'll talk about this in one of the movies I saw, The Black Room, where Boris Karloff plays his own twin. But like, it's like, it's, it, there's a, you can, they can, they're, Vincent Price and Boris Karloff are both very capable of being like very wicked, um, but also just very gentle. Well, and so was Cushing. Peter Cushing. Could oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really villainous. Um, in like the Frankenstein movies, I guess Christopher Lee wanted to be more gentle, but he just has that voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that I uh, could get cast that way. Yeah, one of the things I was doing over October, I found a, a Christopher Lee reading various Edgar Allan Poe stories. Um, yeah. and it's just it's just like oh yeah, that that voice. You're not gonna. What's wrong? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My dear, why are you frightened? Like, it's just it just wouldn't work out. It'd just be too scary. There's um, one, I, I just thought of one, and Hanny Calder, he plays a, uh, some sort of English national living in Mexico who makes guns, mm-hmm. and he heightens his voice quite a bit, and he's super nice and, like, helps the heroine uh, save the day at a certain point, like, helps her escape. Well, isn't, That's one, one. isn't there a Hammer Horror movie, like, To the Devil a Daughter or something, where he plays uh, a sort of Van Helsing type who knows magic? Yeah. And he seems like a dick in that one. Yeah, that's the... And then <laughs> The Devil Rides Out, I think. Is The Devil Rides Out or Demons of the Mind? I, I think Demons of the Mind, he's not a villain in that one, but he's kind of this this insufferable, whining little shit. <laughs> so he could pull that off, too. He didn't get a chance to do a lot of warm right. stuff. But, uh, no, I love those... I love this. I mean, the Roger Corman, uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies, they were, he made so many of them that some of them are just sort of cheap junk uh, yeah, like especially the anthology ones. They, they yeah, the be, anthology ones are the worst. Easily, they can mm. they can be fun, but they're just kind of general cheap. But they're also it was also that era of the '60s when, and this is why Mask of the Red Death is one of my favorites. Um, it was just, and we're obviously going to be talking about this later with Black Sabbath, where just the colors. Yeah, you, you don't like the garish uh, sort of colors that you would see on the sets and. Um, it had, seeing that in the horror genre is still something that I'm not I'm not 100 percent used to because I haven't watched a lot of horror from the 60s and stuff and it always makes me really happy. Yeah, um, it does for me too. I get that same jolt whenever I see like well, highly stylized colorization. And and Bava and uh, Corman were kind of in an active uh, uh, correspondence 
so to speak, in their movies. They were feeding mm. off of each other. Oh, certainly. certainly. They, I they mean, knew each other. I mean, Corman's the one who put out uh, Black Sabbath. Right. So, well, yeah. What's, what's I mean, Mask of the Red Death is literally, the story is just color-coded, where it's just oh, different. Yeah. Or, and that's period would probably be the only one that's more absolutely color-coded. Right. But that's even cutting a color. I mean, mm-hmm. they have the whole room color thing that they that I think Argento... Like, because in Masquerade Death, he has those rooms that are different colors, mm-hmm. and that's something that's in Suspiria, too. So. I'm interested right. in reading up more on uh, the writer of Haunted Palace and Masquerade Red Death, uh, Charles uh, Beaumont, because uh, he, you know, did a lot of early Twilight Zone episodes... And like yeah. he's sort of in that Richard Matheson vein yep. of writing, and that's... Matheson wrote Matheson wrote a bunch of the other ones. Right, they were writing like when they couldn't get one, they got the other. Yeah, no, I'm like I find that whole style of writing really interesting, and uh, they actually this movie called Brain Dead, not to be confused with Peter Jackson's, but um, it was a Roger Corman produced movie, and it had Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton and Bud Cord and George Kennedy. And it was, you know, uh, Charles Beaumont's, like, last screenplay that he wrote before he died. It is such a head-trippy, like, psychological horror movie that I just remember, like, oh, I need to find, like, more of this guy's writing. And, like, he's been writing, you know, way, you know, since since the 50s, and he wrote these incredible, great horror films from that era and, then, and a lot of great Twilight Zone episodes and there's a biography on him so I'm I'm really curious to learn more about uh, Charles Beaumont I just saw uh, Brain Dead for the first time recently because it's on Netflix now. yeah and it, it was much better than I all the review books I have don't give it a lot of credit it's actually the head trippy stuff works oh completely yeah I think didn't I recommend that to you you might have, yeah, and yeah. I just kind of sat on my Netflix forever. I just watched it maybe a month ago. Yeah, the first time. It's it's so good. It's one of the like those movies I rented based on the box, you know, the creepy yeah, face, fun. like pinned. <laughs> it's just so cool. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting because I I have yet to see the Haunted Palace, but you know, being a fan of Lon Chaney and uh, Vincent Price, it's and, and the writer obviously. So I'm gonna be. Uh, Making sure I check it out. Yeah, there was a there was one hall one October. It might have been it wasn't last year. It was like the year before. Um, but one October, uh, MGM HD uh, on Halloween, they just played a ton of Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe mm. stories, and I that's where I sort of saw them all and sort of fell in love with that whole style. Um, Gabe, you didn't mention the Raven as being part of the set. It's not. Is the Raven on Blu-ray at all? No, and. And these, I was going to say, says something about the MGH, MGMHD. These transfers to me, except for Witchfinder General, look like the same ones that were on MGMHD, just without the little bit of distortion that TV causes. Right. So I'm pretty sure that because the Raven and Tomb of Light, Ligella, I can't remember what that one's called. Uh, it's one of the, Ligia. The Tomb yeah. of Ligia and the Raven and the Comedy of Terrors were all on there too. I believe, and uh, so to me that says that Shout probably already has them. Yeah. The fact that they didn't put out Theater of Blood with this set tells me that there's going to be another set, because that's like the fan favorite. Well, that'd be great. I'd lo- yeah, yeah. I've not seen Theater, Theater of Blood, but it seems very similar to Abominable Dr. Fives. It is. So. It's like it's like Fives for actors, basically. Yeah. 
it's a really good set. I recommend it if you have the money to buy it. It's yeah, really they get a good job of making it look nice without like you know getting in there and cleaning it up too much so that it doesn't look like a movie. Yeah, that's always the rub, isn't it? And I think, spoiler alert for next year, I think uh, for October we 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 gotta do Roger Corman. Yeah, uh, sure. Right. Well, let's do next year. Let's go ahead and just let's do Roger Corman and Romero. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be I great. I want to do Romero, but not cover the dead movies. I think that would be. I mean, I know those are his most popular movies. Right. Nobody ever thinks about all his other movies. Like Martin. Martin's Mo- like my favorite vampire movie ever. And Monkey Shines. Monkey Shines is not a great movie, but it's an interesting movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely Monkey Shines is definitely an interesting movie. Uh, yeah, what would it be? It would be Martin. I, w- I wouldn't maybe necessarily go with Hungry Wives, but I like that one, Season of the Witch. Oh Night, yeah. Night Rider is Night Riders is coming out on Blu-ray soon. Hmm. Don't think I've maybe. seen that one. The Dark Half is okay. Oh, he did the but, Dark Half. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The, I kind of like that one. The, the problem with doing Corman, though, is that so much of his, it's its almost the same way I really want to do a, I really want to do one on Val Luton, but he's just, like, he's not a director. And Corman was a director, but a lot of the stuff that makes Corman so special was the stuff he produced. Mm, right, his, that's true. His work. But I still love Bucket of Blood. I mean, we'll find, we can find Roger oh, Corman movies well, that yeah. he directed. For sure. Oh, you know what? Um... I think we're going to do something we haven't done in maybe a year. You Since think it's been that long? I think was, so. Yeah. Because we did it in October, like back-to-back. I mean, it's possible we did it maybe one more time after that, but um, I'm, I'm really excited because it's that time of year where we binge on horror movies, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know. Who, who should go first? I mean, I have less than you yeah, do. Yeah, you should go first. Okay. Um... So what do you want? Forty-five seconds. We're gonna do. By the way, we didn't say we're gonna do a lightning round. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cue the music, and uh, yeah. And for those who don't know, we just uh, give each other thirty to forty-five seconds to briefly talk about uh, a large chunk of movies that we saw pretty much in a row. So um, yeah, and usually around Halloween time, I try to just you know have marathons on my own, and uh, I saw some saw some good stuff and. I'm 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 pretty excited. Um, I th- I think I can do it in thirty. Honestly, I think right. I, I think I can do it. Well, I'm just saying because you cause you, have t- you said you have ten movies, right? Uh, actually eleven. Sorry, eleven yeah. movies. So if yeah. we do it in thirty, then that's like only five minutes. Oh, okay. That's why I was suggesting. More well, time. it it, uh, it leaves more room for you know a quick sentence or two from you guys if you want to contribute to. All right, cool. So, 30 or 45? Um, let's go 45. That's cool. 45. All right, cool. Do you uh, have it? you ready? You have the stop clock and the yep. ding? And ready, go. I saw the Maniac remake. Uh, I've been hearing so much about it, most of it good, and uh, now it's on Netflix Instant, so I'm very excited for people to check it out. I thought it was incredibly stylish. It was almost like Nicholas Winding Refn's take on a slasher movie. Which, you know, obviously with the, the score and, I mean, the choice to make the, 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 you know, from the point of view of the killer, I don't know if it was completely, like, necessary, especially, like, there's actually a moment during one of his slangs where the camera pans to show him doing the act, which kind of broke that illusion. 
Um, but I thought I, I thought it was really effective. I, I was creeped out by it. I thought the score was great. I really liked the style. Uh, the gore was extreme in a way that I felt worked. Yes. So, um, much like Patrick, I liked it too. You liked it too. I did. I cool. Just, I just reviewed it. I liked it a lot. Cool. Um, uh, much like Patrick, uh, I saw VH1, that VHS one and VHS two. I'm not a huge fan of the first, but I did like the second one. Uh, a little bit more, mainly due to the third installment directed by the guys who uh, did the raid. It's a really creepy cult kind of story um, that goes places I wasn't anticipating. Uh, the last entry was kind of interesting, but very gimmicky. Uh, but it involved aliens, and that kind of freaked me out. Um, but I, anthology films, as we're probably going to talk about more, are normally very hit and miss. And these two are no exception, but I think the second one was uh, a little bit better. Now, the third one I want to talk about is one of my favorite movies of the year, and that's called We Are What We Are. Um, it's possibly my favorite horror film of 2013. It's like Dogtooth meets Martha Marcy May Marlene meets The Woman, uh, but with a lot of subtlety and tension that just mounts and mounts, and it's, you know, very subdued, and I really appreciated how um, it sort of incorporated this story of patriarchy gone awry with a religious allegory, uh, great performances by Ray Wise and Michael Parks. So, creepy story, great uh, sense of style from this director who did Stakeland. What's it about? Um, it's basically about a uh, you know family that lives out in the secluded <laughs> woods, and we'll, we'll learn more about that later. <laughs> um, I'll talk about this one really quickly because I've talked about it before. Intruder, possibly my favorite slasher film, um, besides obviously Black Christmas and Halloween. Uh, because it's goofy. Um, the inventiveness with the camera is clearly inspired by Scott Spiegel's best friend at the time, Sam Raimi. The cinematography, cinematography is really good. And uh, the uh, shots are really cheeky and clever, and I just, you know, it's got weird point of view shots, great kills, fun cast, all takes place overnight in the supermarket, becomes kind of a little bit of a whodunit. The final reveal at the end is kind of a nice change for most slasher films. I just love revisiting this one. Um, every year, and that's Intruder. Can't get enough of how crazy the camera work is in that one. What are some of your other favorite slasher movies? Well, besides, besides the Black Christmas, Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one that I probably don't need to talk about too much, but Drag Me to Hell. Uh, what more can be said? Because it's that time of year, and Sam Raimi makes me happy. If he only made movies like this all the time, I'd be more on board with him as a director because this showcases all his strengths very beautifully. The parking garage sequence is flawless. I find that incredibly scary and funny. And the uh, seance is just wonderfully done with the crazy possessed goat calling her a whore. Um, I just think this is a, an example um, you know, that's of horror movies that I want to see. And, you know, they're, they're clever, they're inventive, they have the sense of humor in the right place. It's, it, it, it tonally, it doesn't ever veer in a way that I found off-putting, and I, it's always going to be a rewatch for me. Cool! Um, so I caught up with, speaking of, like, alien-infested horror films, I caught up with Dark Skies, because, oh, hey, it's Felicity! And the guy from Kicking and Screaming freaking out, because they're being invaded by aliens instead of paranormal activity. Uh, I actually thought this one was really great um, until the last act, which in a way reminds me of like uh, Insidious and The Conjuring. Um, it's effective creepiness, a lot of questions about 
uh, you know, the, pers the, 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 the couple's sanity and whether or not aliens have been fucking with us for years. I wish it took more of that paranoia angle rather than exploding into, like, this standard confrontation during the last 15 minutes, but I thought it was uh, pretty good. It, you know, it had a good build-up, and certain moments actually freaked me out because I think alien invasion is scary. Okay, uh, Haunter. This is um, the only one reason why I checked this one out is because it's directed by the guy who did Splice and Cube. So I was really stoked because uh, I'm actually quite the fan of those other two films. This stars Abigail Breslin as a girl who seems to be stuck in a time loop, uh, kind of akin to Groundhog Day. It's a very Twilight Zone kind of introduction where she's like in a creepy house. Things aren't always what they seem. Uh, I, I was looking up and I found like someone on Letterboxd dubbed this as the sixth nonsense which essentially it kind of becomes, unfortunately. It gets way too lost in itself to find any sort of uh, narrative kind of strength, and the story becomes kind of a mess. But it has moments of visual flourish that, you know, I think the director is really capable of, and it's, uh, it's okay. It's just okay. Now, this is a, not, a, not a horror film, but The Dirties. This is another one of my favorites of the year. I feared it was going to be like a retread of the same kind of territory of like something like Chronicle, because... It's kind of a found footage movie, and it's got angst-ridden teenagers. But this one is very realistic. It deals with a couple of aspiring high school filmmakers making a mo uh, you know, home movies about bullying. Uh, they're really inventive. They're huge fans of movies, and it was very relatable for me. Um, I was laughing harder uh, throughout you know, the first hour, and then it becomes a fascinating sh social commentary. And uh, by the end, I was pretty moved by it. I think it's really fascinating. This director and star, Matthew Johnson, is someone I'm going to be watching closely because uh, this is independent filmmaking at its most interesting and original. So check out The Dirties. Uh, 28 Weeks Later, that's, a, that's another surprise. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the original. I'm one of the few. Uh, it just it, It's digital aesthetic kind of grew tiresome for me, I, I, and I wasn't even a fan of the last act involving the military and stuff. I just... This one is a little bit more consistent and streamlined, and I was kind of grateful it didn't uh, adopt that sort of shaky cam approach when shit got crazy the whole way through. Um, it, I wouldn't say it's remarkable. It's In terms of scares, it doesn't compare to something like Wreck, but I enjoy a good apocalyptic zombie storyline when it's done well. Uh, it was weird to see Jeremy Renner show up in military uniform, since I associate that with Hurt Locker, but... Uh, I, I, I preferred this sequel more than the original, because it didn't resort to that low-grade, highly grainy style. Uh, um, speaking of sequel that I was surprised that I liked more, uh, Child's Play 2. I, I know I saw it many years ago um, after it came out on video, but uh, I checked it out again, and I was surprised to say I think I liked it even more than the original. I... I I think it starts to embrace the you know comedic side a little bit more, and the cast of supporting people are all very familiar. The nurse from Werewolf in London, um, but I mean, it, it really comes down to a really great final set piece. It ends on a high note uh, with that good guy's uh, factory and all this shit like going crazy, and he doesn't seem to die, but like there's this melting goo and just really effective chase sequences. I, I just I think it's a it's a good sequel. Um, and last but not least, not a horror film, but it could be considered one based on the claustrophobia that uh, becomes apparent throughout, but Captain Phillips from the great Paul Greengrass. Uh, this one really got to me. Um, I wasn't too keen on the very opening scene where the uh, Tom Hanks and Catherine Keener, who plays his wife, like take a trip to the airport and complain about how the world is changing, but once we get on that boat, it just becomes one hell of a... 
uh, effective action film. Uh, you know, showcases historical event and it happens without being preachy and I just everything about it, especially Tom Hanks's performance, uh, is just perfect. And Greengrass is a truly tense director with a sense of realism, man. I I can't say enough good things about Captain Phillips, so that's that. I think I'm good. <laughs> Oh, that's exhausting. Right? I need a drink. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> hey, Jim. Hmm. Did I talk about prom night last episode? Um, I don't think if so. I'd seen, if I'd seen prom night since we last recorded, or if I saw it before. If I didn't talk about it, I imagine I saw it after. So I'll put that in there as well. So I have about, I think, 18 movies. Wow. <laughs> to talk about. Hold on, let me get my timer. So we can do what? Uh, Thirty seconds or forty-five or? Um, I think we can do. I'll give you. How about we meet halfway? I'll give you thirty-seven point five seconds. Give me thirty-seven point <laughs> five seconds, please. Absolutely. Okay. Are you ready? No. Um. Wait. No. Hold on. I'm not ready. Okay. I need to get my list up. All right. Uh. Just tell me. Go. Go when you're ready. And go. So, Prom Night, uh, I was surprised to find, I actually really, really like this movie. The thing about Prom Night is that it is uh, a slasher movie with a plot, which I tend to not like. I've, told, I've talked before about how I prefer my slasher movie structures to be that the characters don't know they're in a slasher movie until at the very end. Um, but this actually is effective because the opening sequence that sets up the tragic event that is being avenged throughout the whole movie is really effective and creepy. Uh, little kids playing in a band, and, and uh, I don't know, there's like a lot of it that I uh, enjoy about this. I love that Jamie Lee Curtis is able to play a teenager that's spunky and fun, because I think she's a spunky, fun actress, and as great as she is in Halloween, uh, I don't think Laurie is necessarily playing to her strengths. I think she just happens to be the best actress there. Okay, there's Fall of the House of Usher, which is the first movie I saw at the Music Box of Horrors. That's a silent movie adaptation of, the, of Edgar Allan Poe's story, and it's from France, and it is fucking weird. It's basically an art film, and it was the first silent film I'd seen there without organ accompaniment, because it had its own score right on the print, which was important, because it's a very weird, like, 20, 20th century classical, atmospheric, droning kind of a score, and it's just a very movie that has no events, but it has an incredible sense of texture, and it's weird to see a film that was shot that was in the early 30s to just to have some of the extreme close-ups it had, some of the handheld camera work and the high-contrast filmmaking, and it's really dreamy and nightmarish, and it's really intense, and it's very good. Island of Lost Souls is, of course, the classic uh, RKO, uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau movie. Um, Love it. I guess, uh, Charles Lawton, I think, uh, plays the uh, Dr. Moreau, and he's just wonderfully swishy. Uh, he's great in it. It's kind of disturbing. It's, of course, gross, uh, and it's sort of depiction of animal men just basically being tribesmen. <laughs> like, it just sort of equates uh, people like Polynesians as unevolved humans or whatever, so that's gross. But, like, it's a pretty fun movie, and, it, and it's pretty brutal at the end in the uh, surgery room when they're breaking the glass and exacting the revenge on Dr. Moreau. I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, uh, Black Room, as I talked about mentioned before, it's a movie I actually really, really like a lot. Black Room is Boris Karloff. He plays his own twin brother, uh, double impact style, and um, and uh, it's he and it's great to see Boris Karloff both playing like this saint, this really dopey saint character, and this like ridiculously wicked evil Baron type. Uh, he has a lot of fun playing with both, and it's one of those. It's one of the few movies that manages to be kind of playful without ever veering into camp. 
Um, it's very aware of how silly both performances are, but it's not trying to rub your face in it, like say, like Ed, like uh, Roger Corman's The Raven or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's got a good twist. It's it's well paced. Um, the sets are delicious. Uh, there's Night Monster, which is a very strange movie uh, with Bela Lugosi. It's basically a murder mystery whodunit. It's not really a horror movie at all, but some of the plot elements are really fucking bizarre. Like, like the it it involves an, a double amputee. Um, it involves a double amputee who has teleconnect powers, and it has this great uh, sort of detective character who walks around, and he's just is sort of non nonplussed at all of the murders that are happening and the disappearing bodies. And it's a dumb movie for sure, but uh, it's one of those movies that it's so everything about it is so bland and boring that the parts that are really weird and strange stick out more, and it ends up being kind of campy and fun. Um, there's uh, Crawl Space which is Klaus Kinski's uh, film in the 80s, where apparently he was such a terror on it. There was a documentary made uh, that I got to watch called uh, Someone Please Kill Mr. Kinski. <laughs> or he, would, he wouldn't even let the director say action. He basically plays an escaped Nazi who, who owns an uh, apartment building, um, and he hides in the crawl space and spies on his tenants and starts murdering them. And I could relate, because I have a landlord who's a piece of shit. Um, so it's a really good movie in that. And uh, it's weird and transgressive in that, but it, it but it never goes into camp because it's not it's full moon not trauma so full moon never really mastered the art of putting humor in their movies mm. so there's always that weird tone where it's not quite a comedy but it is weird <laughs> and silly um, maniac top two is probably the greatest uh, action horror movie I've ever seen um, oh. it's more more action than horror but maniac but it's much better than maniac top one um, the action scenes are really incredible I really do honestly believe that the car chases in this movie are at least as good as, is not better than the car chases in the Fast and Furious 5 and 6, but that's just because people aren't used to seeing practical car chases anymore. They pretend that the car chases in those movies are something that's special. But um, it's it's creepy, it's gross, it's weird, uh, it's it's fun, it's goofy. Uh, it, it's, it's just a really delightful, playful movie and has a really great sense of space and... Uh, Charles, there's a Charles Manson type who the director in a Q&A told us was based off of uh, Bela Lugosi's character Igor from Son of Frankenstein, which makes perfect sense because he has the exact same hair and beard combo. Um, is that a ding? Yes. Okay, Child's Play. Um, I love watching this movie that takes place in Chicago on the big screen in mm-hmm. Chicago. Now that I've lived in Chicago for a while, I knew like where they were located. And I knew that, like, oh, the department store that Andy's mom works at, that's now a Target. Well, that was actually something my, uh, my partner pointed out. Um, they were like, oh, that's a target now. I know where that is. But it, it's it's a fun movie. I think they do a really good job of establishing Chucky as a real person. Yeah. I mean, he it's easier to do. It's sort of the Toy Story thing where it's easier to simulate things that are supposed to be plasticky um, and look false. But he does really have an honest presence. Um, and, of course, it's funny when he finally comes to life and he randomly out of nowhere just goes into on a weird misogynist rant calling the mom a slut for no reason. Um, speaking of misogyny, Slumber Party Massacre is a... Uh, is, is sort of purportedly a um, feminist horror film. is written by a feminist uh, activist, and it was uh, directed by a woman. But it's kind of compromised. Um, it ends up being as much of what it is trying to satirize, which is sort of the disposable, dumb, naked, beautiful like teens and stuff like that. But it is really fun. Um, it is again just really funny. Uh, I like. Uh, it, it's it's a little slow, but it has it has a great uh, sort of electronic music that is really creepy. Um, the ending is probably where it gets the most pointed with its satire. It's probably the most effective. Um, you have really good. You have at least in the Survivor Girl and her sister. You have good characters who you enjoy watching. 
which is rare. Um, Possession is, a, I believe, a either German or Russian uh, film, and it is one of the strangest films I've ever seen. At this point, during the massacre, this is a 24-hour horror film festival, so at this point I was drifting in and out of consciousness, but it's basically a weird uh, circular film in which um, Sam Neill and his wife are repeating this um, breakup of their marriage again and again and again, and it goes into weirder and darker and more surreal places every time it sort of circles back around. But you keep seeing this exact same scenes where he's yelling at her to come home, but at one but at one time it'll end in a suicide, another time someone will murder someone, and then there's like weird uh, Jacob's Ladder kind of prosthetic um, hallucinations happening, and it's just really intense and it's really disturbing, and it's sort of uh, it's sort of as if someone understood the underlying horror of John Cassavetes' movie and said, "What if we just turn that up a bit, made it more surreal?" Uh, so I'd really like to go back and watch that. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. That's uh, it's uh, that's a no brainer. I've talked about that a lot. I talked about Nightmare on Elm Street a lot. Honestly, this is the one where I tried to catch the most sleep. Um, I think it's one of its, you know, the secret strength uh, is you have someone like Lawrence Fishburne in there. Uh, you like it, the fact that it pays attention to those minor characters and it gives them a little more dimension than just this guy's the asshole. This guy's the cool guy. Like it just Lawrence Fishburne in this movie feels really cool. Like when he stops Nancy from helping the person in the padded cell and he goes, I want to help you, but I can't like he actually is given, you know, a limited amount of extra dimension there, which is kind of interesting. For a movie like this where people are so disposable. Burial Ground is an Italian zombie movie, and it is maybe the single greatest example of why film is so weird and unique. Because I can't think of an equivalent in any other art form of a movie like this. Because this movie is so Z-grade and so horrible, and the acting is terrible, and the editing is hilarious, that it sort of comes back around and becomes this its own weird, compelling thing to watch where... Like a couple who are who are making out on a blanket in the woods will start screaming because zombies are lurching toward them, and then it's, they're still screaming like ten minutes later as the zombies are a little bit closer. Like it's that kind of movie where just things take forever, and it's hilarious. And I don't think like you couldn't have a book that's the equivalent of Burial Ground. You couldn't have a, a painting that's the equivalent of Burial Ground. I think there's something really interesting about that. Um, Terror Vision is a favorite of yours, Jim. Oh yeah. Um, I actually did not like it so much the second time around. I thought most of the humor was really lame. <laughs> uh, I, it felt really, really, really juvenile in a way that wasn't charming, in a way that just felt kind of gross. Um, it didn't, like, I think when I first watched it, I felt kind of Joe Dante-ish, and now it just sort of feels like a gross 12-year-old. Like, all the jokes are just dumb sex jokes, and I don't know, I really didn't I like agree. the movie as much. I love the monster in it, though. The monster's yeah. great. Um, but not such a fan of Terror Vision anymore, which is a little disappointing, but at this point, I was also just... Uh, kind of half crazy from lack of sleep, so I didn't mind it so much. Um, their Chud was the big surprise for me, honestly, because Chud is the wire of horror movies, because ostensibly Chud is about monsters who live in the sewers and are eating homeless people, but what Chud actually about is the horror of bureaucracy and people passing the buck and oversight, and you see this the story of monsters in the New York sewers eating people, but you see it from so many different levels of chain of command and government and people who are on homeless activists and just a photographer and like it's crazy the amount of scale you get in that movie it actually it just works as a legitimately exciting good movie with good characters and good writing and I thought it would just be a dumb monster movie but it ended up being really amazing and so Chud to me was the big surprise Twitch of the Death Nerd we already talked about the last Mario Baba episode oh yeah but it was great <laughs> to see on the big screen Still hilarious. Still one of those movies, like a lot of Italian horror movies, where I struggle to keep up with the plot every time I watch it. Um, but I just adore it. I love, I love how playful and fun it is, and I love that Mario Bava is the kind of person 
who he makes real horror movies, but when he's going to make a fun movie, he's going to go all out and he's going to make it super gory and he's going to make it uh, super silly and he's going to be so playful in every element from the lighting to the to the plot to the char- like to the dialogue everything every element of this movie is Mario Bava having a grand old time and I really love uh, that. Um, after the massacre, that was the last film on the massacre. I watched uh, on Netflix with uh, my partner uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, Regina was very insistent that I watch this, and she was right. Tucker and Dale versus Evil is excellent. It's an excellent subversion mm-hmm. of the evil hillbilly trope. Um, and it's also uh, something I thought would, it would end up being something like uh, Tremors or something where there is an actual monster. But the fact that there's no monster and that people are getting killed because of accidental, like accidental wounding is amazing. Um, and it's really clever and it keeps this premise going, that which could easily run thin quickly. It keeps it going for a long time. Um, it's not quite as funny as like the sort of Edgar Wright movies that it sort of resembles, um, but it is really, really entertaining. And really enjoyable. Uh, last night I watched Movie Forty Three. Finally, this is a movie I actually wanted to see in theaters because I'm a big fan of sketch comedy, and it's useless. It's a useless movie. Yep. It's not to say it's not funny. Um, it, there's there's plenty of parts where I laughed, um, but the problem is it's a sketch comedy movie with no ethos and no tone and no style. And even like Kentucky Fried Movie, they had some kind of comic voice, but this is just akin to like just browsing around on Funny or Die, um, where you <laughs> see a bunch of celebrities doing crazy things. It's sort of the Family Guy of movies where it's, it's trying to be edgy and it and it's trying to like take no prisoners but it doesn't actually have a mission at all and it doesn't actually have a point to it and it is intermittently funny but not enough to overwhelm the sort of feeling of why does this exist um it's a fun oddity and then i also watched a 21 and over which was a movie that looked kind of funny um now miles teller uh, Miles Teller played the uh, uh, the Chris Penn role in the Footloose remake, and Miles Teller is really good. He sort of has a Damian McBride in college sort of a thing going, where he over enunciates his words and stuff. But for the most part, this is just a really really bad teenager version of The Hangover, um, and it's kind of gross and, and racist. It's kind of gross and sexist, uh, and it's just a it's just a dumb movie. And the and uh, Skylar Ashton sort of doing his weird Justin Long if he was boring impression uh, couldn't save it. Even Miles Teller doing his Danny McBride if he were 23 impression couldn't save it either. But uh, so yeah, I wasn't a big fan of uh, 21 and over at all. That's it. Yay! Yay. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. I really want to watch Possession again. If I read I, go and uh, love that movie. I haven't seen it in a I long assume, time though. I assume it was the longer version. I think that's the only one that's even going around anymore. Oh, really? That movie was, that movie was cut by something like 30 or 40 minutes. Jesus. I, yeah, this, it was a movie that, where the, I mean, again, I was drifting in and out of consciousness, so I can't speak to it, but Possession felt like the kind of movie where it, a sort of almost punishing length is part of the important <laughs> part of it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it needs to feel, like, you need to be just beaten down and worn down by it because it is, I, and because I was drifting in and out of consciousness, I couldn't decide if, it was just repeating, like if it was just circling chronologically, or if, or if I was just missing the parts that were linking all of these things I was seeing. You know, the thing is, is that I never thought of it that way because I had seen it. But I kind of think you're right, and that maybe being sleepy actually opened up something I had never thought about while watching that movie. Yeah, it actually makes more sense the way you described it than it does as just a forward-moving narrative. Yeah, I'm really, I'm probably if I watch it again. Like, that was so affecting, and I just, unfortunately, I was just not able to stay conscious during it. But if I watch it again, I'll probably end up talking about it uh, at more length on what we watched segment. Um, let's see, the only other, yeah, I started to watch VHS 2, and the first two stories 
before we started recording, so I only saw the first two stories, but you said the third one's the best one, so I'm excited about yeah. that. Yeah, by far. It's the longest, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Good, yeah. Um, like 30 minutes. Yeah, I was really... Actually, honestly, the things I didn't like about 21 and Over, which is it's by the writers of The Hangover, <clears throat> and it's just that kind of dumb movie where there aren't really jokes, there's just people saying, dude... Like, it's that weird aesthetic that followed It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where they figured if characters were just kind of jerks and were just saying, dude, and then... Like, just talked a lot and chattered a lot that that could replace comedy. Um, and it's always funny, gets away with it sometimes. But I don't, I think a lot of imitators like, what is that? What's that? Workaholics? I think Workaholics is a really bad version of that. Oh, yeah, I, I've really, heard of that. I barely watched either one. Um, but, but the thing about that, that was inter- that's interesting as far as VHS2 goes is, like, it really bums me out that people don't just take the extra time to remove their dumb cliches from their scripts. Like, VHS 2, the two stories I saw, were all full of the kind of lines that only exist in screenwriters' heads. Yeah. Where, people, where it's just like, hey, grab a beer. You're going to need it. Like, mm-hmm. no one needs a beer, one beer. Like, that's not... Like, I'm about to tell you some shit, but if you have a beer... Like, it's just dumb stuff like that. Or like, hey, you ride that bike more than you ride me. Like, who cares? Shut up. That's a dumb... They- the, uh, the the first one, the Adam Wingard one, the eyeball yeah. one, the, you know, he did you see your next? Yeah. No, I did not. I, I really liked I was, it. I was shocked at how much I liked your next because I more or less hated every other thing of his. I agree. But but I have only seen these. He did VHS 1, 2, and ABC's of Death. And he, yeah. did, um, he did a movie called A Horrible Way to Die. Yeah, and I never saw that one. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. Yeah, so I, I don't... I don't know how your next escapes this, yeah, this I know. mediocrity, but it's, I don't, it's I, fantastic. I think it's the sort of thing where, uh, especially with the in case of VHS and VHS two, where it's the sort of thing where you're approached and they're like, "Do you want to do this?" And then yeah. and it's like, "Okay," and then you have maybe two weeks to write something, and you don't aren't necessarily inspired. Yeah, I think so, you're right. And it's just if you're not inspired, not inspired. But and from what I've heard of your next, it's a little more high concept as far as. And it is full of cliches, but it mm-hmm. feels like it's playing with them. I'm yeah. not, I might, maybe he is just doing cliches and we're giving him too much credit. It's possible. But it, it really, But I think the thing about found footage is it makes it intensifies all uh, contrivances where any time mm-hmm. someone does something that doesn't make sense, if it's if they're holding the camera that you're looking through or the camera's in their head that you're looking through, like it's just so stupid and it just makes it feel way, way worse. And the thing about horror movies is all horror movies are like completely made of contrivances. <laughs> like so it found footage horror just seems like a fundamentally poor idea. Um, but I'm really, I'm, I will try to see, I, there's something about the generalist aesthetic that I really respond to and I really like, so I'll try to, I'll finish up VHS 2 today and hopefully I'll like it a little more. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, like I was saying, we are what we are. It is basically like, you know, your secluded, isolated family living in the middle of nowhere, kind of, uh, I mean, they live adjacent to a small town and, you know, they're, they're close with... Some people who wind up uh, passing by, but it's um, it is very even just aesthetically. It reminded me of Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, only with uh, in like it doesn't play with the expectations that I think because it's, because it really play it doesn't play like a horror movie. It just feels like a horror movie. Like the the tension and 
the uh, uncertainty. That's the thing about watching is like, well, what's the deal with this family? You don't know what uh, the outcome is going to be of their behavior and how they're not being able to function normally amongst other people. And uh, it's just, it's one of those just creepy psychological films that I, um, I really, it really got under my skin and, you know, kind of haunted my dreams in a way, but yet it's not like a traditional shocker fest, which is, you know, again, like the subtlety of it is what I really appreciated about it. And I think you will love it, Patrick. I really do. I, I, I really want to see it. Yeah. I think I, I think now that you describe it, I have seen a trailer for it and it looked good. Yeah. Um, Excellent so. score. Everything about it. Great acting. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorites of the year, so that's definitely the best of all the ones I've seen recently. Cool. Um, I think we're ready to talk about the director of the episode. Oh, I think we are. And it is... What's his name, Jim? Mario Bava. Oh. Yeah, I Revenge. This time. How does that feel? How does that feel that I didn't say it with you this time? I feel like crying. Yeah. Yeah, oh. I bet you do. I bet you do. I feel all alone now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh my god. Mm-hmm. I bet you think. I bet you feel like there's a word lack at your door right now. The <laughs> one who you love the most has come to suck your blood. Mama, mama Mario Bava. Mama, mama Mario Bava. He makes the films that are creepy and spooky. Yeah, they're creepy and spooky and lots of fun, just like Twitch of the Death Nerd. Yeah, like Twitch of the Death Nerd First slasher film, first slasher film, first slasher film Mario Baba Mario Baba Mario Baba Mario Baba Mario Baba was born in 1914 in San Remo, Italy. He was the son of Eugenio Baba a sculptor and silent film cinematographer. Mario wanted to be a painter, but was unable to hack it, so he went into his father's business assisting cameraman before becoming one himself. He was a cinematographer of some note throughout the 40s and 50s before directing his first feature film, Black Sunday, in 1960. Okay, welcome back, guys. Um, I'm really excited to talk about uh, Mario Baba some more, because... um, we didn't get to cover everything extensively on our first episode, and there's just so much to talk about, including um, his take on the anthology horror film, which uh, I'm kind of a fan of. You know, one of the uh, first ones I saw as a kid was Creepshow, followed by the rather underwhelming Tales from the Dark Side movie. Um, but it did take me a while to come around to um, Baba's gothic take on this short story style of filmmaking, and um, side note, of course, as we mentioned earlier, um, I did see the American version, which um, starts with the drop of water segment, um, and I believe that was inspired by Chekhov, and it, like, just the um, setup, I was I was hooked, and I think as the um, film went on, I, it, it clearly, like, this you know, short story style really plays to his strengths, and obviously we're going to highlight more of how his use of light and shading and color is just incredibly influential. He's almost like the Paul Thomas Anderson of horror films, and I don't, I don't know if I said that last episode or not, but it just, like, his tendency to go all out in a really crazy way is always appealing, and 
Uh, so that's that's not necessarily something that people would associate with modern Paul Thomas Anderson. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. The last couple, but you know, I just I I think that um, you know the, the seeing Boris Karloff like bathe in a purple light and you know I was like, uh, you know, I'm kind of done with the the, the whole vampireism in general, but. Baba's take on it is certainly refreshing, and even if you're not completely like immersed into the story, you're just uh, wowed by the visuals as usual. And I think that uh, Black Sabbath is another winner for for this guy. I'm constantly impressed by it the more I see from him. So yeah, I actually I think one of the and and not that this you know would should not necessarily change the movie so fundamentally, but one thing, one of the biggest differences between the American and the Italian uh, version of the film is, or maybe international version, I don't know about other countries, but, uh, but, um, about of the film is that I think the order of the films is probably much stronger in the international version because it ends on drop of water, which I think is the strongest story of the three. I agree. Um, if not the strongest, at least the scariest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. It's that face. That, is, that one was made by his father, right? Yeah, made of wax by his father. It wow. is so it was, uh, effective. Yeah, I was just reading uh, about his dad in uh, Tim Lucas's book, which is now available as an ebook. All the Colors of the Dark. It's basically the most uh, over-the-top uh, exploration of a single filmmaker's filmography that anyone's ever written. But there's all this stuff about his childhood, and his father was this uh, really great technical... Uh, photographer and he actually created all these camera rigs but he was of the belief that uh an artist's uh payment is creation so he refused to do uh uh patents on any of this stuff and so the baba family probably could have been millionaires at this point Hmm. if uh he would have just patented but yes he made that out of wax that's it's really great and of course the sound design is excellent. It's sort of a Twilight Zoney kind of a story, as yeah. anthology horror films tend to tend to be. But um, it's it's really just the yeah the photography and there's something about the I can't, I, can't, I I'm I'm always really bad at pronouncing this. Uh, it's the Italian term uh, for the way that, or at least it's the Italian term for the way that art can be lit. That I think applies to Baba's work. Kiera Kiascaro. Um, sure. Where yeah. it's I've like the it. way he sh- the way he shoots dark rooms, where the the traditional way of shooting a dark room is to make everything sort of tinted blue mm-hmm. <laughs> and just shoot it in low light, um, and then that way it sort of simulates darkness as a representation of darkness without being a dark room. Whereas when Baba shoots a dark room, it's just really really heavy shadows and pools of light and you know halos and outlines around objects and stuff. I mean, probably the best example of this would just be the opening of Twitch of the Death Nerve, but there's certainly some of that in, um, in the what is the in the in the the final story of uh, Black Sabbath as well, um, and it's yeah, just the and the and the lighting. I think this show, this film was shot on Technicolor, right? Uh, it was at least produced in Technicolor. I don't mm. I don't know if it was shot, but yeah, Technicolor. So it's and it's just the the colors garish. There's a, like a huge blinking light outside of this woman who has stolen this ring. Uh, there's this huge, huge blinking light outside of her uh, apartment window that just keeps going on and off throughout the whole thing, which is a which is a technique that Baba likes to use a lot, actually, which is just yeah. a, 
I think that I think there's some of that in Blood and Black Lace as yeah, well. Yeah, there definitely is. Where there's not necessarily a uh, logical explanation for where the light is coming from, even, but it's effective and it's coming from an off offset. So who cares? <laughs> like you know, maybe she lives above a strip club. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's really great. Uh, and yeah, just that build up, and then that face is really truly. And this is something I honestly I was super shocked by because I'm not usually scared by just scary faces or um or just think oh my god it looks so creepy like things are sometimes things can be gross like violent enough that they're they're kind of gross to me and they kind of creep me out that way or it could be like scary face that pops up suddenly um like a like a sort of the jump scares that you see in a lot of horror movies but just that face is really terrifying looking yeah it's not like it's not ripped up or anything like on the exorcist it's just distorted (sighs) yeah it's Mm -hmm. yeah that's really distorted. It's a good way to put it because it is. It just the proportions feel slightly off um, in ways that are hard to explain. Um, and as this woman's, you know, she's terrorized by the ghost of the woman she stole the ring of from. And it's, I mean, again, the thing about all the stories in Black Sabbath is it's super simple. Like they're very simple stories, but um, that simplicity allows Mario. That simplicity actually works way to its benefit because um, Mario Bava. It allows them to sort of just work in on you know just to just lavish in the art direction and sort of the tension and and the suspense and not have to deal with a lot of plot. Which, if, as we talk about our next movie, that and and honestly, a lot of in my opinion, a lot of Italian horror films that tends to be the death knell, uh, uh, it, which is when things get too plotty. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's something that if you're a fan, you just have to sort of ignore plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a couple. I mean, I, I I know we talked about it on the Argento cast. I think that Birth of the Crystal Fluage actually has a really good plot, and that yeah. Deep Red has a really good plot. But I'm struggling to find another one with a really good plot. They're usually the thing you have to overcome with with these things. And to that and to that note, I mean, the the worst story in Black Sabbath is the phone call. Is that what it's called, or the telephone? Yeah, the telephone. Yeah, the telephone, which is. Now, Jim, I actually, I, I've not seen this story in the American version, and this is the one that was changed the most substantially. Oh, really? So, right. can you recap to me what you recall the plot of the telephone to be? Because I believe they added a supernatural element for the American release. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's really kind of, um, I mean, it starts off like when a stranger calls, and she's getting stalked by uh, a voice, and we're not exactly sure. Um but you know it's a it, it turns into the uh, you know killer that escaped from prison and what's really confusing to me is uh, the the way things are wrapped up. I I just I mean the caller claims to be her old boyfriend Frank who escaped from prison. He swears vengeance, um, and I he he just manifests himself and we don't specifically know how or why or if he wasn't dead at all. He he just shows up in physical form at the end. And um, uh, strangles her, I suppose. Right, and and that I just watched it for the first time since I was a little kid, and I don't even know if I was able to finish it when I was a little kid because it was too scary. So for me, like literally maybe an hour and a half ago, I just watched that because I didn't know that the U.S. cut was the one on Netflix, mm-hmm. and I was utterly confused because they make it seem like he's a ghost, but then yeah. don't really change the last the, the climax. <laughs> right. So she stabs a ghost to death. Mm-hmm. Sort of, and 
Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense the way they put it together for the American cut. Yeah, because in the international cut, he's getting revenge because I believe it was her and her lesbian lover who she calls over. Um, like they put him away, like they ratted him out or whatever. Yeah, he's a pimp in the uh, <laughs> international cut. He's a pimp, and they're her his call girls, and they had him put away in prison, and he supposedly got out. Okay, that so it must have been subtext because I don't think he ever say the words pimper. No, I don't think they they referring. Yeah, they never. I, I think it is subtext. I don't think they ever specifically call him a pimp, but they are his call girls, and they turned him in. And in the American cut, it, she's just some lady. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Over like, and she even says, I, I was just noticing, she even says, oh, of all the people you would call me, mm-hmm. which has implications to some backstory that is not gone into. In the, in the U.S. cut, or in the uh, Italian cut, um, we discovered that, you know, and they keep it kind of subtext because it was still yeah. in the 60s. But we discovered they were lovers and that she has avoided her. They had like a messy breakup or something. So the of all the people you call, why would you call me thing ends up being important because the twist is that, and even this twist doesn't really make any sense, but the twist is that she uh, she's the one talking on the phone, not Frank. Yeah. Hmm. And I believe, and I, I wish I would have watched both of them right in a row, but I believe on the international one that she is whispering, so you can't tell if it's a man or a woman's voice. Yeah. Oh, that would have been so much better. Yeah, and the American one I just watched, it's very clearly, a, it's not only a man's voice, but it's like a guy who does a lot of dubbing for uh, Italian horror movies. Well, that's the, other, that's the other thing I was wondering if, if you could speak on. Um, do you think the acting is, suffers at all in the American version, or can I think you tell even? I think it's actually the other way around. Oh, really? Um, hmm. That was the one thing, is that because so many of the main actors are speaking English, uh, the English language dialogue is, and is better, and I wish there was a way, because the music's totally different, too. I wish there was a way to, like, some, some you know, DVD Blu-ray company could find the American tracks, or English tracks, and kind of put them over the Italian version and, and there'd just be a couple dropouts where there isn't anything where you'd have to cut back to Italian. But there's been the deep red, uh, release did the same thing where if there was ever a cut scene, it would suddenly just be Italian dialogue with subtitles and you kind of get used to it. Gosh, it's I watched a completely different story practically. Yes, yeah, basically. Got, yes. But yeah. I, I would probably say in both, both cuts, it's the weakest story. Yeah. I would, I would assume that because it's the most plotty and it's, I don't, I mean, like I said, they're not a very eventful stories in general, but that especially, it suffers from a lack of significant elevation. And it's not ironic either. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something about, that we're kind of used to with, uh, with uh, an- anthology horror movies, is that there's some sort of ironic t- twist, and that's the reason they get away with such a short runtime. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's really just, it, it gets all this credit, that some people call it the first Giallo movie, in color, which I guess is true because the other one, the couple before it were shot in black and white, but it barely even, to me, even in its uncut form, really works as a Giallo movie either. I guess it has strangling and stabbing and sexy women, but I, I, I've never really bought that. So I agree with you, Patrick. I, I think it's the weakest one by quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. I would agree, too. Uh, now the word lack is the is a story I do enjoy quite a bit because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I believe it's the longest one for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's the one that uh, it ends the American version, but it's in the middle of the 
it's in the middle of the international version and it's um the sun the way that uh um the, my friend sarah who i watched it with she described the sets as operatic like they're very they look like sets from operas yeah um mm, where yeah. Like, the backdrops like the sky doesn't look like doesn't even look like it's trying to be a sky it just looks like a scrim <laughs> like the sort of thing you'd see in a theatrical production right. and the and the sets feel very much yeah like like very self-contained and there's a lot of outdoor sets in this story and it ends up being a really fascinating aesthetic uh sort of a thing where you have this the outside of this farmhouse and you have these sort of gnarled trees and stuff but everything is so clearly phony that it and and then that combined with the sort of garish colors oh. <laughs> of, of this movie in general it ends up being just this really fascinating beautiful thing to watch yeah, the the like the moonlight blue and the orange yellow glow of the window. It's like just that approach is really it, like intoxicating as you're watching it, and uh, you know it sort of shows like that kind of influence on something like you know a lesser film like Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. I mean, it, this this could almost be like if Black Sunday was shot in color. You know, it's just he sort yeah, of yeah. Black Sunday had the same thing with its outdoor set. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, for sure. It's it's kind of like uh, the Hammer Horror aesthetic meets Wizard of Oz is is kind of <laughs> yeah Wizard of Oz shit that right. is so yes exactly Wizard of Oz has the same thing when you're when they're when she like finds the scarecrow it's it's ostensibly outside but it very much looks like a stage there's some parts in Wizard of Oz where you can see that it's a painting it's a forced perspective painting yeah and as they're actually like 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 it, it's at slightly the wrong angle. And I actually really like I really like those parts. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's it adds to the it, it, there's something about uh, a heightened uh, sense of artificiality that can end up making something feel more potent. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially in, when the story is as fantastical as the Word Alack or even Wizard of Oz. Like Wizard of Oz, if Wizard of Oz was shot <laughs> on hand, handheld cameras, it, it would just be like, or you know, or it was shot, shot on location. In on farms or whatever, where they just built these long yellow brick roads through actual forests or whatever, it'd be totally different. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't feel nearly as magical and delightful and wonderful. And I think that's that. And but because Baba plays everything straight, um, it's not quite as campy as some other Corman productions of this time. You know, right? Um, it ends up having this great middle ground um, that I'll, that only a few movies really have, where it it has the fun of sort of a Halloween spooky kind of a, like, like a corny kind of a thing, but it has, but it still plays and, and is effective as an actual horror. And it helps um, to have a guy like Karloff. I mean, he's just full of malice and threat and, you know, I mean, he's, but at the same time, it's, it, he's still got the, not necessarily the camp, but he's, he just seems game just to go all out. And uh, it, it was really an interesting reaction from my, roommate who overheard the movie um like the line where he says do you mind if i fondle my grandson (laughs) and she heard that and she was like what the hell are you watching yeah well that's that's the other thing that is different between the international and the american version is the international version has a completely different uh framing thing where boris karloff sets up the stories yeah 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 um, I think in the, he lets us know that it's a joke. Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> said, like it, it's really fun. He goes, "Their vampires are real, you know. They could be even on the audience. That's right. Vampires go to the movies." <laughs> like, and he well, and it, it was AIP's way of making because kids were the ones who saw those movies right. in right. the sixties. 
and and the ending of this movie in which Karloff is on is on his horse as his character from the word of lack and he says some some kind of winking like clever little thing about the story that you stories that you just saw and then he goes aha and then he starts to sort of ride but then the camera pulls back and you see that he's on like a fake horse that's just bouncing up and down and you see that the people are holding bushes and they're like running around and you see the whole camp like you see the whole set you see the camera and the lighting and you see and it's again it's the number one sort of heightened artificiality of it all and i think it's a really brilliant thing that (laughs) baba does is that in the american cut jim um, yeah. That end? Yeah, no, that, it yeah, that okay. is. I couldn't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. I couldn't remember what it was. I think that was the I, thing I just read, said that that was something he was kind of forced to direct, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering right, but that he ended up liking, and so he added to the international cut. Yeah, I, that's I, that's a really fun... I, I, and I think I think in the, in the American version, Boris Karloff introduces all the movies, where in... Well, uh, Boris Karloff's real voice makes a lot of difference to the American version. Oh yeah, right. It, it having him speaking his very specific Boris Karloff voice instead of generic Italian guy voice, it make it makes a big difference. I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's just a couple bits of gore cut for the American one, like uh, severed head is a little shorter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So otherwise, that the Verdelac is the one that you could see on either version by itself and not really, and actually get more out of the American cut. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, th- uh-huh. I still think it would be interesting to, if I'd seen it with the stories in different order to have the uh, the drop of water being the concluding chapter, like ending on that incredibly strong note instead of starting with it, kind of yeah. probably makes a difference. And then I'd, I'd be curious to just watch it, the, uh, the different version, to see how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think pacing is important. I think yeah. I think anthology films should always end on not only a strong note but also a bit of a shorter note, mm-hmm. um, a bit of a punchier one. I mean, like Creepshow ends with uh, a gross one, <laughs> the, the, the gross one, but also the most heightened. Uh, yeah. One. yeah, I don't think anything in this universe is as heightened as Gordy Barrel, but <laughs> but like you know the most the most sort of pointed and weird and uh, self contained and the one um, that Jim can't watch. <laughs> yeah, the one that Jim that Jim can't watch. You guys, by the way, if you want more Halloween treats, you can just go back and listen to our creep show commentary, uh, where I go Jim into opening his eyes while the uh, cockroaches are crawling out of E.G. Marshall's throat. Yeah, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> yeah, I it's just, uh, like a little girl. It's, it's super gross. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I was. I was making fun of you at the time because it was fun to, funny to me. But I don't blame you. <laughs> it's really gross. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I think, and I think. Drop of Water is clearly the strongest one. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think Three Extremes is another anthology movie where oh, yeah. uh, Takashi Miike's is sort of the most singular and potent uh, story in the whole movie, and I think that movie works better when that ends it. Yeah. Well, in some countries, it, for that one, they only released Fruit Chance, the first one, because that one apparently had a feature-length cut. Yeah, that does, I have the DVD for Three Extremes, and it and has a bonus disc with the it does. feature-length dumplings. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's really amazing. Um, but, yeah, so, I don't there's something about anthology horror I really... Number one, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, because we've talked about anthology, but I like short films, and I think yeah. short horror... I think horror definitely benefits from short films, um, because it doesn't have the problem of having to wear out its premise. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it can just sort of deliver on a premise and subvert it a couple times, and then you're good. Um, well, yeah, and and that's something about Vuderlec, uh, Vuderlec in, in particular, is that it feels like those Corman movies minus the filler, the dramatic filler that yeah. sort of gets old on some of them. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's the other thing. I, I feel that some of these, they, some of the stories that end up, some of the short films that end up in these anthology movies have to be longer scripts that just got cut down because yeah. like, Dumplings for sure felt like that uh, in Three Extremes. Um, and I, I feel, I often feel that's the case. Not so much Creepshow because Creepshow is so designed to be its own singular but um, but definitely the word lack just feels yeah you're, that's a very good uh, way to put it it's like yeah uh, all the filler cut out um, all of the all of the bits you remember <laughs> as a kid yeah. from watching that movie without all of the long conversations and the boring dialogue and the uh, whatever because yeah because there's even like traveling in that movie where the guy just instantly falls in love with the girl <laughs> and you don't know yeah. why and they like travel away to a different place but it's never really it's to establish how long they've been traveling or where they go to or anything. Um, yeah. Well, that plays into your whole thing about the set being so close. It's like, well, where the hell would they go? There's, right. They're in a room basically. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, they're like, well, I left the room and went to a different room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I grew up like really loving uh, Stephen King's short stories. And then, you know, twilight zone, amazing stories, uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Like, I just loved these really good oh, yeah. self-contained... Tales from the Crypt, obviously, I'm a yeah. huge fan of. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, I wasn't too crazy about, like... I know people are really big fans of uh, Trick or Treat. The, uh, one of the... That, that was well, tri- fairly recent. And I just... I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty weak. I thought that Trick or Treat's main problem was that it was a little bit... I don't know. It, I don't know if afraid is the right word. Because I don't want to... I don't want to put intentions into the filmmakers that... Maybe they did things for completely different reasons, but uh, what the reaction I got out of it was that it like, almost felt a little afraid to be an anthology movie, so it gets hmm. edited them all together, yeah. um, but with very very minimal overlap, um, and I think it's, that... It, it's definitely one of those things that is impressive the first time you see Trick or Treat, the way they overlap, and then if you watch it again, it does feel sort of unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it almost feels... It, just, it ends up making every individual story weaker, I feel. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I mean, it helps in the stories that are really shitty that you don't have to watch them all the way through. <laughs> like, because that's the th- that's the thing about uh, anthology movies is if you have a bad one, then you just have a fifteen minute part of your film that just doesn't work. Yeah. Um. But, but uh, yeah, Trick or Treat. I'm not a huge fan of, except for the last story, um, which I think is honestly a rip off of a of a famous or at least famous to me, uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side episode that uh, Tom Savini directed. Oh really? Where a guy yeah, I've never seen it. Where a guy is tormented by these monsters or whatever after not or after being a Halloween grouch. <laughs> hmm. uh, it's a it's I I'll have to look it up. Maybe I'll find it on YouTube and I'll put it on the blog, but um Yeah, I'm curious about that. But it's I I it's a that one's really fun and the character design obviously is great, which is why that character has become iconic. Yeah. Uh despite the movie not necessarily becoming a, a, a widely regarded classic. They have one in the uh, claw machine at the at the supermarket near my house, and I, I really want to get it out, but it's just not coming out. Yeah. We know claw... Stuff, that was just random weird thing to have that guy in a claw machine. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know claw machines are games of chance? Yeah. Where they it predetermines whether or not its grip strength will be strong enough to actually hold anything? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's not even a game of skill. Yeah, claw machines are kind of rigged, but that is weird that that would be in there the same way that like a Freddy doll or whatever would be in there in the 80s or 90s. Well, there's also a Freddy doll, actually. It's a pretty good claw machine. They have yeah. Ghostbusters. <laughs> they have Ghostbuster guys. They have an E.T. in there. Like, there you go. Yeah. Um, a Buzz Lightyear? No way! <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's... I mean, that's Black Sabbath. Again, just the color is so delightful. And, a, and, a, and I mean, this also carries over into uh, Blood and Black Lace, but mm-hmm. um, something that alternative, alternatively... Um, put, puts me off of Italian horror, and something I really like about Italian horror is that the that the interior sets are so garish, and I don't know what was with Italian interior decorating in the seventies, but like shit always looks bonkers, and like, like the colors are always all over the place, and there's always these really crazy ostentatious lamps and stuff. I mean, um, it makes it they're like hoarders. Everybody in the yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. a good way to put it. Yeah, there's yeah, there's just it always feels like way over crammed, and that especially during the uh, the the drop of water um, uh, story when you go just go into that mansion and it's just so yeah, it just looks so hideous, and then in the color that makes it even better. Um, I think Blood and Black Lace has some pretty good color too. If you want to uh, move on to talk about that, oh yeah, definitely, sure. Um, now Blood and Black Lace. Now this is not the first Giallo movie, Gabe. Oh, it's the first full-on color. Like, like it was the movie that defined the genre, really, because of all the color and the uh, the way the killer dresses, uh, the, the degree of violence. Baba had done uh, a, another really good movie called uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, or uh, The Evil Eye was another title. And that one is really the first quote-unquote giallo movie but mm. you can there you could read arguments going back well psycho was the first giallo movie well spiral staircase was the, because it has to be italian so if we're going with italian i think that uh that uh, the girl who knew too much would be the first giallo movie but it wasn't in color and it wasn't particularly violent um so blood and black lace like changed the aesthetic right uh and then and then uh you know uh uh Several years later, uh, Dario Argento changed it again with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and that's when everybody basically copied Bird with the Crystal Plumage, who was already sort of copying Blood and Black Lace. So Blood and Black Lace is the story of, and <laughs> honestly, the again, plots in Italian horror movies are so hard to follow and bad yeah. that I don't know where it takes, it's, a, it's not a boarding home. I assumed it was a boarding home until a character just said out loud, this isn't a boarding home. <laughs> so I... So I don't. It's like a a model company. Like it's the company. Yeah, building. Uh, yeah, it's the company's building. They don't necessarily live there. I don't think. I think that only two of the characters actually live there. Okay, I thought there was like a. I thought there was like a room with a bunch of beds at some point. There might. You know, I, I have to agree with you. I've seen it probably ten times, and I just watched it two days ago with an audio commentary, and I still have trouble following it. It it really is a little bit of a. Of a mess. Yeah. Because there's so many red herrings. I think that's the yeah. main issue. <laughs> um, it was weird. It was weird, though, watching um, the uh, remake of uh, Maniac and then going right to this with all the mannequin stuff. 
It was yeah, that's just, true. It was a little bit much because I just find uh, mannequins creepy in general. But like, I I love the uh, opening credits of Blood and Black Lace. I think that's just such a cool way to start it. Oh yeah, the the, the weird kind of tableaus yeah. where um, introducing the actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are just sort of posed yeah. as if they're mannequins. That's I, and again. The color in this movie, it's not as garish, and it, I don't think it was, this probably definitely was not shot on Technicolor. I think it was Eastman color. If I, 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 I think I specifically looked up to see. Um, and so it's not as crazy and bright and garish, but it is, but the colors are still really great. Um, uh, and yeah, that opening's really good. And the, the, uh, the opening's really effective, and the opening of the film actually, and not just the opening credits, but the opening of the film is really effective as sort of a dark stormy night where the, the Laura, the Laura Palmer kind of character, who apparently has dirt on every single person uh, <laughs> in this in this town, uh, and they all have their own reasons why they w- would want her dead. She ends up, you know, just being uh, brutally kind of strangled, um, and then it does. So, so I'm not a giallo expert. I'm, I like slasher. You know, I'm more used to slasher movies, and obviously there's overlap, but they're sort of their own different little sub subgenres. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw some I was, people credit Blood and Black Lace as the first slasher movie, and I was like, oh, it's, "Yeah, one bleeds into the other." Yeah, that's what it feels like. But uh, but one thing that shocked me about this movie consistently is that usually, especially slasher movies, and this may be the case of Giallo movies or just the ones I've seen or whatever. But usually, the death scene ends with the death. <laughs> where there's the build-up, there's the tension, there's the suspense, and then the person finally dies, and you get your gore shot, your payoff, and then this sort of ends. Mm-hmm. Where this film consistently just then shows the mon- the weird mundanity of what a killer has to do after they kill the body, <laughs> what they have yeah. to do with yeah. the body. Which ended up being, which started off being really, really weird, but ended up, uh, overall, I think, kind of being effective as far as um, just being really creepy, uh, in a really human, because the killer almost feels supernatural with their sort of faceless. They have a, like a cloth mask on that just c- is completely featureless. Not even like Michael Myers featureless, but just not even like a nose or eye holes or anything. It's just a featureless uh, cloth over their face. Um, and so it ends up making, yeah, it ends up putting you in the mind of the killer, which is which is obviously not, this is not the only movie to do it or even the best movie to do it, but it's always a really, when they do it in ways that catch you off guard, um, like I don't like the original Maniac because I think the acting isn't too good and I think if they're actually trying to do a character piece, they're not, it's not, like I just don't think the character is very strong. Mm-hmm. No. But yeah, in, I agree. Yeah. But in getting in, but when putting you in the mind of the killer without having to be like, what makes them kill, you know, without doing that stuff, but just in the mundanities of, okay, you're the killer now, what do you do with this body? Uh, okay, you hear footsteps coming up the stairs. What are you doing right now? Like, <laughs> like the, the consistent ways that these scenes would end with the, with the killer trying to have to deal with the aftermath of what they've done um, ended up being a really interesting way of doing that. Um, it's usually I'm trying to think about it because I hadn't hadn't. That's a good observation, and I'm trying to think about all the Giallo films, and it's not very common because usually the film is built around a mystery of right. who the killer mm-hmm. is. And usually they're not wearing a mask. Yeah, you so just, showing oh, yeah. too much of that. Yeah, so showing too much of that would reveal the identity too early for the audience. So yeah, it is pretty rare. I'm, one time I can think about is in Tenebrae, and the whole point of that is that they reveal the killer early. 
but that's still towards the end of the movie. So, yeah, I can't really think of any out of the top of my head. Hmm. But it, it definitely turns it, changes it from shapeless, the shape, sort of. And again, I'm, I'm still coming at this from with slasher movie sort of terminology. But and I know that giallos do tend to uh, humanize the killer because the whole point is guessing who the killer is as opposed right. to just the killer being a force that can't be reckoned with uh, or a force to be reckoned with. But, yeah, it definitely uh, humanized the killer and made it interesting. Uh, those scenes are all really great. Uh, I think the best scene is in the – it's in the shop. Is, is he a prop master? What, what does he do exactly? Which guy? The, the the shot where the the woman gets the uh, sort of weird spiked spikes to the face oh. and then she gets oh. the coat of armor on her. What shop is that? It's like it's an antique. Uh, it's it's supposedly an antique store. Okay, and yeah. So he just goes. He follows her into the antique store. Yeah, and, and I guess finds that thing somewhere. Like <laughs> I, do, I don't know if he walked in with it or. <laughs> it's really weird. Look, I don't know what that thing is or supposed to be. It's a it's a medieval torture device. Oh, okay. And it was such a popular scene that um, I don't remember which country, like Germany or something, it was actually, the movie was retitled after that claw thing. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't that happen very similarly at the beginning of Black Sunday? Yeah, exactly. That was the thing I just heard on the commentary track, is Tim Lucas uh, says that he thinks of the scene as a uh, kind of mirror to the beginning of Black Sunday, where they put the medieval torture device on her face right. and hammer it off. And, uh, yeah, and then yeah. The, that movie was known as Mask of Satan. Hmm. Yep. Because the mask was the important part to them. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like that scene where she's being chased through that is effective because, again, the way he lights those dark spaces is so effective. And it's really an art because I see a lot, especially the low-budget 80s like slasher movies, there's lots of scenes that are just too dark to see. There's yeah. a lot of terror train that's just really poorly lit and looks shit. Um it, it's recent movies too. Like yeah. digital digital cinematography makes it makes it so you can shoot in lower light. And I think a lot of filmmakers who don't know what they're doing try to get away with it. Like yeah. uh, the guy who did uh, I can't remember Spell. Uh, the guy who did the uh, Texas Chainsaw and Friday Thirteenth right, remakes. Right. Oh. His movies are so dark. Oh, that's true. Right? Mm-hmm. It's almost not fun to watch. I, I yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I enjoy the Friday Thirteenth remake, but that is definitely true. Towards the end of that movie, the way that that movie's lit is just really dreadful. Yeah, um, that's, that's and something that Mario Bobbin just knows. Like he just creates a, such a really amazing feeling of space by specifically choosing to light certain parts of a room, um, and just you know there are just pools of light in one part and complete shadow in another, and it doesn't feel like that there's just light bulbs hanging everywhere. It feels, it, it has the actual effect of dark, which is, of being in the dark, which is that your mind, that your eye sort of jumps to the, to the light coming through your window mm-hmm. or whatever. He's or, got a real sense of control of his environment. And I yeah. think, you know, like, he, you know, just in, in choosing to like have this incredible, like eye level tracking shot through the, the living room, uh, you know, it, it's like, is this the killer's point of view? And then we see the corpse lying on the floor. Uh, and I think just like these kind of, you know, um, highly aware uh, that you're watching a movie, but still being like fully immersed into it based on his choices. I think that's, he finds that really cool balance. And uh, I just think he, he's like, you know, considers us to be like these witnesses to the to the spectacle of malice but yet he kind of romanticizes it too which i think you know 
not necessarily like, oh, that's cool that that person got killed or whatever, or that it's beautiful, but he finds beauty in dread, which is kind of interesting. And I, I, it just the, the 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 subject matter makes it feel maybe a little uh, a little grosser, yeah, <laughs> than it than it than it would otherwise. Because I mean, even the poster is like these six models are going to die. Like it doesn't even try to assert that some of the men are going to be the ones who are murdered by the killer. It's only beautiful women <laughs> who are getting <laughs> brutally murdered, which became another thing for slasher movies, right? Or, and giallo movies. The the men's deaths are never. Almost never as as spectacular as women's deaths in those movies. Yeah, I, I yeah, <clears throat> to an extent. I mean, those, I, I guess more in Giallo than Slasher. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Slasher movies just equal opportunity gross. Mm-hmm. It's just the the men's are sexualized. They're they're not right. the men are kind of die naked. <laughs> yeah, generally, but yeah, um, but so there's those scenes are great, um, and the and I love. I mean. I would love to just like a forty-five document, forty-five minute documentary that's just a camera <laughs> that was there on set while Mario Bava works with his lighting crew to light a scene, and you just <laughs> see them arriving on set. You see them setting up, you know, arriving on set with all the objects sort of where they are, and just seeing them light it would just be really fascinating to me because he just paints these beautiful images with light, which is you know, which is what you know that's what film is. It's painting with light and shadow. Yeah. Um, and he was usually his own cinematographer. Yes, absolutely. Um, but man, this movie drags so much oh, anytime the, it tries to the, do anything about the plot. The per, the procedural elements with you know the the cops or whatever, like th- that stuff drags. And I think that I think a lot of that happens in a lot of like uh, giallo films in general, where there's just this moment of you know downtime that. It's focused on the plot rather than you know uh, maintaining its uh, its pace. I think that that almost becomes. Uh, we probably talked about it before on uh, the Argento episode, but that's something that I noticed with this film is that um, you know I think I think the pace is a little off. Yeah. Well, it to me it doesn't feel as long as some of the no rougher Giallo movies, but. I mean, it still kind of moves, but yeah, it does. It's mostly because it does just doesn't make sense. There was mm-hmm. some part of the problem was they were writing scripts for largely English speaking actors, I guess. So there, there was something about how uh, the one actress, uh, I think her name is Mary Dawn, rewrote the dialogue. Like, I don't, I <laughs> doubt she even got paid for the rewrite because she realized that Italian writers had no idea <laughs> what Americans talked like. Right. So I, I wonder if they just realize they have to fill 90 minutes and sort of like, well, we'll write some small talk, and we have no idea how Americans talk. Yeah. And I, I, I also started to wonder, and this is, I, I was wondering this while I watched uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which we can talk about a little later, um, as that's, that's the new other Mario Bama movie that I, I saw this time around. Um, but it, it, I wonder how much of it is just it's hard to be invested in characters when, because if I'm not mistaken... A lot of Italian genre films they recorded, and even non-genre. I think Eight and a Half also did this. They yeah, recorded. Most, they did most Italian films. They record. They did all the sound post-production. Yeah, it, and it, it was actually it, it's still done. I think. Really. Um, I was there's a comedian. I'm trying to remember who it was. I was just watching a comedian who was making a joke about making a movie in Italy and how people don't shut up. Like <laughs> they say action, 
and the crew just keeps talking because there's no sound being recorded. It's uh-huh. really distracting for non-Italian actors. So I, I, maybe they stopped finally, but I, it was pretty common up until recently. But, but do you think that, that it's possible that that affects the performances so much that it's just, <laughs> that just in general, you're They're not flat. going to, you're not, yeah, you're going to get flat performances, you're not yep. going to get interesting characters, and that's sure, <laughs> sort of a fundamental Absolutely. problem for a procedural. Well, there's, a, there's a fundamental problem where you read interviews with Bava and Argento and Fulci, and they, they don't really like actors. <laughs> that's hmm. another... Italian thing, I, though. Though the reason that I was reading a thing that said the reason that they, they had the tableaus at the beginning of Blood and Black Lace is because Baba did really like those actors, so he went out of his way to give them title cards, basically. Uh-huh. But for the most part, these filmmakers think of actors as being a big problem with their filmmaking. Yet another homage to uh, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're all. They, yeah. They all want had a certain need to be Alfred Hitchcock and. I don't, um, I don't know if expressionists were the same way because that's the school he came from. Yeah. Um, the, so I guess the question I would have is just like, because I think, I mean, there's a lot of plot in Twitch of the Death Nerve, but for the most part, I kind of enjoy that in that movie more than any other sort of Italian horror film that has a similar structure where it's all a whodunit and it's all, you know, conniving people mm-hmm. behind their backs and politicking and, and, and scheming and stuff. Um, so I guess, there's almost no way to guess. There's almost no way to guess who the there's, yeah. there's just no clues. And, and so I guess I guess my question would do. And I don't know if you guys feel the same. You guys can disagree if you want. But like, what do you think it is about Twisted Death Nerve that does it? What is it about the way that, that approaches it that makes it different from some movie like Blood and Black Lace, where it just stops the movie dead whenever uh, it gets to those points? Well, Twisted Death Nerve is a bit of a satire, so I think the fact that. They that I don't know who wrote that script, but that they knew that it actually didn't matter. That it was all it, like they maybe they treated it a little less seriously. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's a lot more humorous. The, all the di- especially the dialogue between the fisherman guy and the and the and the insect collector and, mm-hmm. the, and yeah, the, they're just weird people. It's oh, and that's the reason I still always say Bird of Coast Plumage and Deep Red are my favorite Argento movies because they're the only two funny ones. Oh, that's right. true. So long. So long. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I, 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 even just the way uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve ends, you know, I think, it, it, you know, you can see that the the influence that movie has had um, on on so many slasher films, but really like that that sense of humor, the fact that it doesn't take itself too seriously, I think helps the the tone overall. Unlike Blood and Black Lace, I I, I felt like you know it it dragged. I was still interested in what was going on, but there were just moments where I was kind of tuning out, but also realizing, oh, this is kind of par for the course, though, for these movies. You know, there's always this long stretch of dialogue and interaction that's just not as interesting as, you know, being stalked. <laughs> I, I honestly, I think that's, you know, looking at it from that way, the, that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to slasher movies, mm-hmm. is because it, slasher movies have the same structure where there's just a lot of filler, but what slasher movies tend to be, because they're all sort of based on Halloween, is slasher movies just tend to fill their movies with the mundanities of teenagers and just yeah. teenagers being teenagers. And I, and I think that a lot of movies about that are actually about teenagers 
don't have enough mundanity about being a teenager. I think a lot of being a teenager is just sitting on your friend's couch and watching TV and just like chit chat, idle chit chat and stuff. It's like the myth of the American sleepover without, yeah. you know, with like a, the slasher. Well, I've, I've rarely seen slasher movies that are as, char- as character driven or as strongly yeah. acted. As Myth the Americans Leader. But yeah, it's a similar sort of thing where it's just about those tiny detail. Uh, it's just sort of about those tiny interactions because, I mean, uh, uh, practically what they're doing is killing time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And you can have, and instead of, instead of just being about the mundanities of suspense stories and Alfred Hitchcock kind of thrillers and stuff, it turns into the mundanities about going to high school and liking the girl and stuff like that. And I think that's probably, honestly, if, <laughs> Honestly, I would like a slasher movie that was eighty percent that, <laughs> and like twenty percent a slasher movie. Because <laughs> that's the sort of thing I'm actually I often respond to, which is why I tend to hate slasher movies where the characters are insufferable, and why I tend to like characters uh, slasher movies where the characters are good. Yeah, but that would be why you liked Prom Night then. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And well, did you ever see? Um, oh God, now I lost it. It just came to me, and now I lost it. Uh, well, Terror Train is almost like that, but not quite. Terror Train is is sort of like that. I mean, they have. I kind of like the characters in Terror Train. I, I don't. I don't recall Terror Train. All, all I remember about Terror Train is the is the lighting really annoying me. I, it's, yeah. it's been too long since I saw it, but. Um, oh, I know a good one. Uh, the the original uh, My Bloody Valentine has a oh, lot yeah. of that, mm-hmm. a lot of that, in. and they're a little bit older in that. If I'm remembering right, they're in their twenties and thirties. Yeah, they're they're coming back for. Like if they're not actually high school kids, maybe that's what what Twitch and the Death Nerve works is because where these people's weird mundane lives are are the plot. It's not about the cops trying to figure out who's killing people because there that's, are no cops. Yeah. that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's about it's about how this insect collector hates his wife and is getting his aggression out on these little bugs. <laughs> like, yeah, like stuff like that is is a lot more interesting. I mean, stuff like that couldn't sustain a whole movie. It's not like these characters are so fascinating. I want to see a whole story with them, but it definitely. Yeah, it, it does a much better job of keeping your interest in. You need to be my alibi. Well, if you don't be my alibi, then I'll tell you about that 30000 whatever I owe you. Oh, so now you're going to, like, and just their scheming and all the, which literally has no payoff. There's never any, there's all, all of the, all the people sort of scheming and talking to each other and, uh, and stuff like that. There's never a payoff in Blood and Black Lace because they all get locked up at the end and it turns out they were all, they locked up all the wrong ones. Yeah. Well, the other thing watching it I hadn't thought about in Blood and Black Lace is that it did do the, the there's two killer thing before Scream did. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. such a big deal when Scream did that. that like, oh, that, that's that's the big twist. That's us being subversive is that there's two killers. And I had kind of forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the mm-hmm. one killer sort of trying to convince, and the one killer sort of being the dominant one. Yeah. And, and stuff like, yeah, absolutely. There and could have been, actually, they could have given, you know, uh, now that we're talking about this, they could have given away who the killers were earlier, and there might have been more interesting. Those scenes, I actually, I, I actually like the scenes where uh, the two killers are having their little, I, once they reveal who they are, and we and we see the, that dominant submissive relationship, those scenes are pretty good. I oh, think. for yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, they're kind of bullshit. Like, she acts like killing is so traumatic for her, like, like as if she only did it because she had to, but oh, the, the murders she commits are the most horrific. And, like, right. they, right. like uh, you kind of enjoyed it. I could kind of tell. But, no, I, that's it's definitely more interesting um, once that happens. And it even has the thing that most, most of the Scream sequels do, where there's two killers, but one is betrayed by the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and yeah, so uh, that's actually one of the things that I found really fascinating. If 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 we're ready to move on, well, I mean, well, guys... just one quick thing. Oh, absolutely. The other thought that came to my head watching Blood and Black Lace, and it, because you mentioned the Maniac remake, is that actually is a movie I think would make a really good. You could remake pretty easily mm-hmm. because. Not only because of the basicness of the plot, you could rewrite the whole thing, but because uh, the whole uh, fashion industry is much more ingrained in Americana. Like, there's, you know, next top model competitions. (laughs) It could take a more satirical approach. Yeah, and and that's the kind of remake that works, is the one that takes the basic premise and totally... And it has... Yeah. And it has good design for the killer. That mask is still very yeah. effective. It's still very creepy and yeah. unnerving. I agree. Yeah, yeah that, I just that, that was a thought that came to mind watching. I think it might have been because my girlfriend had just watched Next Top Model. But, <laughs> but it's possible that it, that it would have come to me otherwise too. I, I just I just know that the if anyone were to remake this movie in the land in the world of. Uh, of fashion reality television, it would be the most insufferable thing. Like, every character would be so... It would just become a parody of the awfulness of reality television characters. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah, like, part of me kind of wants to see those people murdered. Yeah, you yeah, know? no. There's it, there's a certain satisfaction in that. Oh, yeah, but, it's, but it is still just that... It's just that it thing would get, where... It would get messed up in the wrong hands. It's the modern It's the modern horror problem. The problem I have a lot of modern horror where it's... They want you to dislike the people so you root for them to die, as opposed to they want you to like the people so you feel scared when they are threatened. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, no, that, it's, you're definitely right that there's a lot of material there that could easily be mined into a richer movie. Um, maybe not necessarily as beautifully shot a movie or as suspenseful in those scenes, but uh, definitely a thematically richer movie than what's here. Yeah, um, I would agree. But I, I would like to see a slasher movie taking place on the set of Dancing with the Stars. I think that would be yeah. really, really effective. Like, maybe even just get Gary Busey in it or something, you know? I think G- G- you could have all the crazy, uh, all your red herrings would be the crazy celebrities. Yeah. You know, like, Gary, you just, you'd assume Gary Busey did it, but oh, then it man. would turn out that one of the judges actually did it. And, yeah. and if, they were, if it were actually celebrities, and at this point in our culture, we could probably Easily. have a slasher movie where just all celebrities playing themselves. Easily. And it turns out... Everyone thinks that Nicolas Cage is the killer, but he gets killed off first because they're not going to pay him to be in the whole movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then it and then it does turn out to just be like Roseanne. Um, imagine if like This Is the End was like a huge blockbuster success, and then everybody just started doing these movies where actors just play themselves all the time. Like every summer, we get a slew of those that would movies. So quickly become the worst thing. Ever. It would. It would, but we would get some good stuff out of it before it became the worst thing. It would be. It would be fascinating. It, even the bad ones would be a little fascinating. Yeah. Um, before it was just super navel gazy. Um, I would like one. I, I actually there might be one. Isn't Baghead a mumblecore movie about people making a mumblecore movie? Um, I don't they've never seen it. Yeah, I've they seen start- it. I think they're making a movie in it. I mean, it's just, like, it's a mumblecore slasher movie event. I mean, know, especially just like. looking at VHS and stuff, if you just had a movie where all the characters were Ty West and all those mumblecore people who, and, and the sort of the new uh, American indie horror aesthetic. Well, <laughs> like, w- without giving anything away, I think you're really going to like your next. Your next. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Cheer. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be able to hear that cheer all the way here in Grand Rapids. 
Uh, yeah. I, if, if Ty West gets his just desserts, though I heard his new movie's good from people who don't like his other movies. Oh boy. So I'll, I'll <laughs> cross my I'll cross my fingers, but not hold my breath. Yeah. Um, but so I thought Hatchet for the Honeymoon was going to be another Giallo or slasher movie, but it's actually a in the mind of a serial killer kind of a movie, hmm. um, where the character uh, early on directly addresses you and says that no one suspects that he, a humble fashion magnate uh, who owns a wedding dress shop, is actually a killer, um, and it's sort of is a, it's sort of a continuation of Psycho, but it has those flavor. But it, it feels almost like a predecessor to things like American Psycho or Dexter, where it it taps into the inherent uh, sort of sociopathic nature of a of of a of a hardcore capitalist <laughs> or a, or a fashionista or something like that. Like uh, like his his character feels a little bit like Patrick Bateman. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to realize, I, I think I watched it when it came out on Blu-ray, so it's been about a year since I've seen it, but yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but the problem is that it is, mo- like, there's actually not that many kills. You don't see him kill too many no. people. Um, and it's mostly pretty slow, and it's mostly, yeah. like, every other movie you've ever seen that purports to just be, like, oh, he's becoming slowly obsessed with killing, and when he hears the footsteps echoing in his head, that means he has to kill again, or it could be drums, or it could be whatever the fuck. It's some whatever thing that triggers him, and, and where it's a representation of addiction, or sex, or both, or sex addiction um, um, sort of thing. And you've just seen it a million times, and this doesn't really do it that much differently. Um, there is a sort of interesting twist towards the end where he kills his wife, and then he starts seeing his wife ghost, which is you know par for the course as far as horror movie goes. Ghosts being sort of manifestations of guilt, um, the sort of telltale heart sort of a thing. But the thing is, everyone sees the ghost except him <laughs> until they point him out, point her out. So it's a weird thing where uh, the rules of her ghost are completely not determined because he just yeah. care like at some point he decides that he's going to get the best of her ghost because he knows that she's a ghost. So he's like, well, fine, I'm going to take you to a club. So he has a bowling ball bag full of her ashes that he takes to, like, a go-go club. And he tries to pick up women, like, in front of her ashes, but everyone sees her. And, like, it's it's really kind of interesting, the ambiguity there. Uh, and if, I don't know, if the movie played on madness in that kind of way where it sort of violated inherent rules that you think of when you think of ghosts in horror movies like this... Um, it'd be more interesting, but that's only towards the end, and it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, it's effective. It's 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 well made. It, again, uh, it has that mannequin thing where he has a basement full of uh, mannequins wearing wedding dresses, and he likes to take his victims oh. down to the basement, and he likes to uh, he likes to ask them to put on a wedding dress, and then he dances with them, and then he murders them with a hatchet. Um, it it's not. I don't think one of Baba's best, and I think you struck on something that the ending is better than the beginning, and it kind of feels like they never really figured out what this movie was going to be until they were almost done with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, the, and it's yeah. always sold as a comedy in, in modern times, but the original trailers was a horror movie, but now everybody talks about it as a comedy, and so it kind of is both without being either. It doesn't, it's not funny. Like it's it's it, it's cheeky at times, just knowing. Yeah. Times, but it's not funny. Like there's no. Yeah. Um, I, I would, and again, I would say the problem is uh, something like this, where you're trying to get inside the mind of, and you, you're going to do it as a character study. You need a good actor to be the center of it. You need an Anthony Perkins, uh, and 
you know, the main character is about as bland uh, an Italian uh, lead <laughs> as you can get. Um, so, unfortunately, you don't get much out of that. Um, there's a really good suspenseful scene where after he just kills his wife, the inspector comes uh, and because some because another girl's been disappeared that you that he saw him kill in an earlier scene, and her blood is sort of dripping onto the carpet right near where they are from the floor above them. Uh, so he's like trying to get them to not look in that direction and stuff. Like it's it's an effectively made movie. It's just so generic that it's hard to uh, that it's hard to really wholeheartedly recommend. Well, I kind of want to briefly reiterate. Oh, that's okay. If you wanted to comment on that on that movie, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say that it also has a lot of uh, of that fade in, uh, that that uh, whole out of focus and then refocus and you're a new scene thing that he does in Twitch of the Death Nerve, mm. and it's a little annoying. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's especially back when you had to watch it on VHS and it wasn't in widescreen and you couldn't really tell what you were supposed to be looking at. <laughs> it, it definitely helps that it's on you know digital video now. Um. Even though we talked about this on the last episode, uh, the other one I wanted to catch up with, just so I can give my take on it, was uh, Planet of the Vampires. And uh, it's probably my favorite now. Uh, Your favorite Baba movie? Yeah, I really loved it. I thought it was, you know, I mean, you mentioned that it's, you know, the precursor to, you know, uh, Alien and Prometheus, and it's just clearly, like, uh, you know, I was just, like, well, what's his take going to be on a science fiction horror movie, you know, swapping the, the the castles and cobwebs for this, like, you know, colorful landscape of an alien planet? And I was just, um, you know, thinking again, oh, vampires, it's going to be cheesy, but it, it's more of, like, space zombies, you know? Yeah, this, the planet of the vampires was AIP's title, that, that yeah. terror in space. The well, that was, that was the era when vampire was a catch-all term for undead ghoul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true, but it's just, again, technically speaking, I mean, you know, the the palette, again, and the production design, and just those little flourishes of, you know, things that only Baba can accomplish, I, I was just, like, constantly into it. I mean, it does start off, you know, with the cheesy tone that you come to expect from, a, like, a science fiction movie of that era, but, I mean, like... We've we've been watching like some older Twilight Zone. That that the acting back then is just so highly stylized that you almost have to readjust how you you know watch acting when you're seeing something older. And that's you know I think it, it, it's effective throughout in how um, you know the, the, this is a science fiction film with actual intelligence, but really just intriguing visuals throughout and. Uh, I mean, we talked about it a lot in the last episode, so I won't, like, reiterate too much, but I just wanted to say that I'm really glad I caught up with it. Um, and looking on, a, it, this is funny, because I didn't even um, see it until now, but there is a review on letterbox.com that says, I just want to say thank you to the Director's Club podcast for pointing me to this one, which I thought hey. was really, really nice. Hey, that's nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, as far as expectations go, I think I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this last Mario Bava episode, but one of my favorite things about that movie is that it starts off as the most generic, yeah. cheesy, sci-fi sort of reroute, <laughs> like reroute the phaser photons to sectors three, and like just people slowly turning dials and stuff, <laughs> that when it gets legitimately creepy, it comes out of left field, and it actually ends up being way more effective. Yeah. 
hundred percent. It's also one of those movies I always go back to because uh, it uh, it keeps coming up in conversations because the uh, uniforms in the first two X Men movies were basically ripoffs of the uniforms <laughs> in it, and then and then Prometheus was it was almost a remake of I mean I, 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 that's that's a little bit a little bit of hyperbole, but it had so much in common, and we actually watched it just before we saw Prometheus the first time. And so all those things were in my head, and it's sort of fascinating that nobody involved with Prometheus has admitted that they basically taken everything from this movie and just made it modern and gory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and again, colors. It's it's always good to match Mario Bava. Yeah, Prometheus has, like, no color. That's right. Bright colors. (laughs) Prometheus is very gray. Well, it's a modern. It's a modern Hollywood. Uh, I guess, no, film. the uniforms are kind of colorful. I forgot about them. They're kind of like gaudy blue uniforms. But otherwise, uh, what what other Mario Bava movie would you like to talk about, Gabe? Um, I was trying to think about this, and I figured that I I should bring up because he didn't just do horror movies, right? And the one that because uh, honestly, and I'll like lose my card for this, but Blood and Black Lace isn't one of my favorites. It's one of the important ones, and it has great scenes. But I don't like it as much as some of the other ones. And the one, uh, Danger Diabolic, I think, is like the one Mario Bava movie that probably the most people have seen without even knowing who Mario Bava is. At the very least, they've seen the the Beastie Boys music video <laughs> that took scenes from it for Body Moving. Oh, right. that's right. Yeah. Where so and also I I believe and I'm hmm. not really an MSTK Mystery Science Theater fan particularly, but I believe it was one of their more popular episodes. Yeah, mm. that is true. Which always struck me as weird, because it's already a campy comedy. It seems kind of weird to make fun of a comedy, but I I think The Danger Diabolic is one of those films, the first time you watch it, you say, oh, that was crazy and could only have been made in the 60s. And then you watch it again, and you start to realize it's actually really clever, really funny, uh, genuinely gorgeous film. And it's the kind of, it's one of those few films I could just basically watch whenever. If if someone comes over and has never seen it, as long as I didn't just watch it yesterday, I could probably put it on and watch it again. Yeah, that was a movie. That was a movie I actually rented, and I never, I couldn't get around to watching. It. I was really bummed out because I am interested. Like, I honestly would be cool if we did another Mario Bava episode about none of his non horror films because I'm really want, fascinated to see what a western by Mario Bava looks like or kidnapped. Yeah. Kidnapped is uh, it, his westerns. I aren't great. The two I've seen, I haven't seen all of them. Uh, but the interesting thing about his westerns, at least the um, the one that's available in this box set, I've, I've got another one from somewhere, is that it it's a comedy. It's a bit of a satire that predates all those spaghetti western satires that became so popular. So he, he was ahead of his time all the time, without even meaning to be. What was the yeah. what? I, I was unaware that spaghetti western satires did become popular. Oh yeah, after uh, in this and and this comes up because I am uh, already behind on a review for uh, uh, I think it's Image is put out. Uh, My name is Nobody, the Sergio Leone uh, produced and partially directed film, which came out. It was the last western he ever worked on, and then it came out because after Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, there was this series, uh, the Trinity movies. My name is Trinity, and Trinity is still my name. That were sort of satirizing the uh, the Leone aesthetic and also adding the typical Italian comedy of farting and burping. 
And I actually don't really think they're very funny movies at all, but they were mega popular. And so uh, My Name is Nobody uses the star from the Trinity movies and uh, uh, Henry Fonda. I almost said Jane Fonda. Henry Fonda and uh, kind of puts them in a movie together. And the idea being that this is the old guard and the, the new guard and all this stuff. But it's, it's a much more interesting movie than the Trinity movies. And so Bava had already done, uh, I cannot remember the name now. Roy, Roy, Roy Cole, Cole, Winchester Jack. Yeah. Yeah. That one's sort of basic. It, it predated the Trinity movies by like a year. If I remember right. And then what's kit? Cause kidnapped is also on Netflix instant. Kidnapped is interesting because it was not completed. It was actually made. I'm trying to maybe well, I just quickly look at it. It was made in '74, uh, so it was made a while ago, and then it lost funding. And it was actually the same about the same just after he made Lisa and the Devil, and that lost funding, right? Hmm. Uh, and it was re-edited. So these two movies he was working on right in a row kind of fell apart, and uh, and so it was called Rabbit Dogs. It was technically never completed, and it's actually maybe the best plotting in any of his movies. It's sort of a, uh, they kidnap, it's like a kidnapping movie that's on the road. Like they're in a car driving and these, uh, these bank robbers, I believe they're bank robbers, uh, uh, basically carjack these people, but make the people do the driving for them. And it has that sort of, uh, hyper realism and that level of violence that's in stuff like, uh, last house on the left. Uh huh. It's not nearly as bad as Last House on the Left, but it has that sort of... It doesn't feel like a Mario Bava movie. Right. It's, it's hmm. really gritty. Well, that's why it, it, seemed that, it seemed that way from the description. That's why I was sort of fascinated by it. And I'm probably the only person who will say this, but I like the Rabbit Dogs cut, the incomplete cut that was uh-huh. released years and years ago. Hmm. I like that one better than the kidnapped cut, because for kidnaps, they shot a bunch of scenes. His son, Lumberto, shot a bunch of scenes to add in so that we could see the other side of some phone conversation has a slightly different ending and it's really obvious that this footage does not match this footage. <laughs> and so I, I, I prefer the other cut, which I think is still on the DVD, but I'm not sure which one's on Netflix. I'm pretty sure it's the longer cut that has the added stuff, but it doesn't like ruin the movie or anything. It's just a little weird, hmm. but I definitely recommend it. It has, it has, a, it's, it's not like quite the lost classic that it sometimes is, called but it's a very good movie awesome yeah awesome. there's so there's still so much to see and i mean yeah. the i mean you know that 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 phrase gets bantied around a lot you know style over substance but i think if you if somebody were to use that and for for baba i think it's you know complimentary you know like he yeah. he really like just has these incredibly interesting excursions into different genres that you know work at you know in terms of a visual palette, but he just does inventive things that clearly have inspired so many filmmakers. That you know it's great to go back and watch these. Well, I think I think when people say style over substance, what they're really trying, what, I mean, what they're implying is that someone was so concerned with style that they that they were not concerned that they that less of their attention was given to making sure that the film yeah. you know had interesting plot or whatever. But like a lot of Baba's films, they're perfectly complementary. Like, I think a lot of Black Sabbath, the style, the lack of substance 
is set so there is, so there can be all that style, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Like, if there was a ton of substance and there was a ton of thematic, like, subplots and stuff like that in Drop of Water, like, that would just, that would just boil, that would just bog it all down. It would be horrible. Yeah, um, I think he finds you know, a good like, balance. I think, mean, like, Black Sunday is sort of a simple tale of, of reanimated corpses sort of coming to take the revenge, but... But it's but the reason it's simple is because it knows what it really wants to be, which is to be this stylish sort of all these great scenes and these sets and this mood and this atmosphere. And I think I think Mario Bava at his best is style. <laughs> style is substance. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. You know, uh, as opposed to I don't know. I mean, well, I to- I totally like. Some of my favorite movies are absolutely style over substance. Yeah. So I, I try not to even get in that argument with people <laughs> because I have I have no, I don't really have the legs to stand on. Right. <laughs> I, I could totally enjoy a movie just because it's good looking. Well, I just I just remembered that I saw Shock. I rented Shock uh, about six months ago or whatever. That's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I really liked it. Better on a dramatic level than a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the thing I appreciated about Shock was because it seemed like to be sort of part of the same. Uh, at, it's seriously occupied the same wheelhouse as something like The Beyond or like House by the Cemetery or stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, like these kind of crazy Italian ghost, like haunted house kind of movies. Yeah. But Shock, compared to those movies, is so, like, it has such integrity where it's about a story and, this, and there's a reason things are happening and the story is about you discovering the way that the reason these things are happening. Whereas stuff like, you know, like Fulci's entries in that are just so bonkers that the story right. is just incomprehensible to its benefit in the case of something like the beyond i'd say but like um shock just kind of shows that you know in the late 70s you know bob is still sort of that old kind of filmmaker where he still cared about plot <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's a good performance from daria nicolodi too yeah yeah do we want to give our top three i mean i know we did in the last episode but maybe it's changed since then oh yeah certainly um, um, my number. Uh, oh, you go ahead, Jim. Okay. Um, like I said, I I really became a huge fan. I mean, it could change again within a year, but uh, I loved Planet of the Vampires. And number two would be uh, Black Sunday. Number three is Twitch of the Death Nerve. Uh, Gabe, I'm gonna because we already said the other ones. I'm gonna say the three that I think people should watch that they might not have seen. Cool. Instead. Okay. So I'm going to say Hercules and the Haunted World is very underrated hmm. and seems like a lot of people don't even know Baba directed it. Uh, Kill Baby Kill is readily available on Netflix, I know for a fact. And uh, I'm going to say Lisa and the Devil again, which I think I said last time too. Yeah. I, I saw that as well. That one, I, it was a little, that one I got lost to the point. And, and, and it, it's totally, it has no real plot but to me it's just the ultimate version of that plotless aesthetic minus yeah. all the gore that Fulci would put in which <laughs> is a different kind of ultimate version I guess right sure yeah it's no for sure there's the the scene where the I think it's Telly Savalas is carrying the man and then it turns into a dummy and then it turns into a man again yeah, yeah. like that, that kind of stuff early on there's like yeah there's, there's a lot in that movie that's really surreal and creepy and effective yeah. um that was actually that was originally going to be one of the movies we covered, but I figured that Blood and Black Lace, just because of its legacy and everything, would be it, more. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, it was the better tricks than that. Um, and then I guess my favorite movies are still number one is Black Sunday, and I watched it again this Halloween, and I just I think I've just certainly decided it's the perfect 
kind of October movie. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's going to, it's going in the permanent rotation along with, uh, Halloween, um, uh, for sure. So let's see. Number one would be Black Sunday. Number two would probably be Black, Black Sabbath, just on the strength of the, of the filmmaking, uh, of the cinematography and that final story. And then number three would be Twitch of the Death Nerve. Awesome. Yep. Um, Gabe, once again, you're, uh, you're one of our favorite people. And we really appreciate you. having you on again. I am. I have not quit the uh, uh, Bloods and Crips thing. I've been very busy with the review stuff. Yeah. And I, I do. I'm working on, I think the two things I've been working on that have like notes about for that would be, I, I was realizing there's a lot of Catholic-themed horror movies that are mm. not supernatural. Oh, really? Movies about the guilt of Catholicism and... I was going to write a thing about those because it just suddenly came to me. That's and then it also suddenly came to me that 1981 is basically the year that all my favorite slasher movies came out. Almost all of them came out that one year. Hmm. So those were two things I was trying to try to work on that I just haven't finished. Great. Look, for, look forward to it. Yeah. And, of course, you can read Gabe Powers over at DVDactive.com. Yeah. And he's still not on Twitter. Resilient. I am. Yeah. But, yeah, I... <laughs> It's hard. It's, it's hard not to because, like, the other day I, I posted something on Facebook because I was watching, I can't remember what movie it was, but Eli Roth said something about how only bloggers and reviewers are going to listen to this commentary track. And I realized, you know, if I would have tagged him on a tweet I, and said I'm listening to this commentary track, I probably would have gotten retweeted and felt like a big man. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Eli, Roth, Eli Roth's all about retweeting his fans. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's good at that. <laughs> so, so maybe I need that narcissistic thrill. Yeah, you really do. You really. Craig Brewer, so Craig Brewer, uh, director of Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, the Footloose remake, he, fo- uh, he follows me on Twitter, and he recently, his first movie ever was recently released on Blu-ray. Um, it was a very, very low-budget black-and-white movie, um, and hmm. he was asking who wanted to get a copy of it to review it and stuff. And uh, I sent him a direct message. I said I'd love to do that because I'm a big fan of yours. And he, I just got that movie in the mail, and he sent me a nice handwritten note with it. Aww. So Craig Brewer, doing all of his own personal mailing, uh, lives in Memphis still. Uh, <laughs> like He's a really cool down-to-earth guy. So hopefully next episode uh, I'll be able to talk about his, uh, his new movie, which I think is called The Poor and the Hungry. That's great. I'm, I'm excited about that. We should try and get him on the show. We really should. He's because... a really... He's a really great guy. One time I tweeted at him to let him know that uh, that I, w- I was having a bad day, but I really loved his Footloose remake, and that that really cheered me up. And he goes, oh, well, I hope you're feeling better. Like, <laughs> he, didn't say, he didn't say thank you. He just hoped that I was having a better day than I was. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's similar like with how I got the um, Andrew Davis interview, because his first movie was released on DVD. And uh, yep. you know, it was, he was more than happy to talk about it because it was so unknown for a long time. Yeah, so uh, so celebrities, uh, or even minor celebrities, acknowledging your your existence, uh, it definitely gives you a little boost. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Twitter, where can we find you on Twitter, Patrick? I'm at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. Oh, cool. Uh, I've I've picked up again at uh, Martha Marcy Nash and Young WordPress dot com. I wrote my bits about uh, movie forty three and uh, and uh, Hatcher for the Honeymoon and all that there. I'm going to try to go back and try to finish writing reviews of all the movies I saw at the Music Box of Horrors. So if you want a little more um, than just a panicked me talking for 37 seconds, uh, you can probably find that stuff there. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, what about you, Jim? Oh, I'm at uh, Twitter at Instant Jim, and uh, if you really love star ratings, you should go over to Letterboxd. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm on Letterboxd. I'm on that. There okay. you go. What's your name on Letterboxd? Uh, shit. I think it's just Gabe Powers. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Do you write reviews, or do you just star? I just star. I... You, you yeah. write enough reviews. Yeah, I don't need to write reviews for for other things. It's just Gabe Powers, one word. I just looked it up. Cool. Hey, Patrick. I see that Jim gave We Are What We Are uh, four and a half stars. That's true. I loved yeah, it that much. Exciting. Um, and, of course, our website is directorsclubpodcast.com. That's where you can find all of my blog posts. That's where you can find Gabe's uh, Bloods and Crips article uh, column. That's where you can find the episodes. Yeah. That's what. You oh. find all the links. Go ahead. No, no, no that's, uh, <laughs> you want to email us? It's directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, at DC Podcast on Twitter. Oh, that's right. We do do that once like in a while. Our, like our Facebook group. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a review on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. Uh, give us a hug if you see us down the, on the street. I live in Grand Rapids. Patrick lives in I Chicago. I live in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Hug us. We, we love hugs. Um, and we love emails, uh, and we love voicemails, too. If you're a celebrity, write me a handwritten note, and I'll uh, name drop you Yay. on the podcast. Um, <laughs> you know what, Patrick? I couldn't be more happy about our next director. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because uh, I'm quite the fan. I mean, there's a couple of films of his that I actually don't like whatsoever, but the ones uh, that I love, I really, really love, and that is Nicholas Winding Refn. I, be- I believe our guest is Chris Olson. Is that? That's right. Yeah. Chris Olson, like you, Gabe Powers, a fellow defender uh, slash enthusiast of Only God Forgives. You know what? I might oh. have given up on defending Only God Forgives because it's starting to feel better to like something that people hate so much because it feels like it's in the spirit of that movie. It really is. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, you know what? Good. I'm happy you hated that because I liked it. And I'm going to watch it again just to spite you. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely hated that movie for sure. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. More power to you. Um, yeah, I don't know if I could talk about it, though, so good thing Chris is helping out. Yeah. I'm going to uh, rewatch it. I'm going to see how I feel about it. What are we going to end up doing? Like Pusher and uh, Drive or Pusher and Pusher 3? or? Well, maybe, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's tough. Like, I, I think, you know, even, you know, when Drive came out, we talked about it a lot, and a lot of people had yeah, seen on the, it. On the, it. It was on the Argento Cotton. Podcasts. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't seen it yet. Right, so I think yeah. we'll choose. You know, definitely a pusher and maybe Bronson or yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about Bronson. That'd be fun. Sure. Um, so yeah, join us in a couple weeks for the Nicholas Whiting Refn episode. Can't wait, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Do you think there are any good episodes of Home Improvement?
Um, is there one where like somebody gets shot? <laughs> 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 I swear, I thought there was. 